On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Daniel Yang in Marin, California. on this podcast, the idea is for each episode, I will get on the phone and I will conduct a roughly a two-hour two long interview with a guest. The guest is usually somebody in the bike frame building world. I try to help them mainly tell their story, like origin story, kind of how they got into making bikes. And then I want to talk about, you know, their ideas and perspectives and and really, I mean, one of the objectives with this show is so that everybody kind of gets introduced to everybody else and it makes everybody a little bit more approachable. We have a forum to talk about these sorts of ideas that we care about. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit more process heavy or engineering heavy, or it talks a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of the business, or it has to do more with, you know, aesthetic considerations, or it can be any and all of these things and beyond. This week, my guest is Daniel Yang. So a couple of years ago, he started working with Nick Newhouse of Newhouse Metalworks. And so Nick's been building bike frames for a while, but more recently with Daniel, uh, they've been able to take advantage of Daniel's skill set. So Daniel's like partway through a doctoral uh, like engineering degree, and he has a lot of firepower, right? Daniel is a really talented designer with CAD and with just engineering related things. So you might have seen on Instagram underpaid intern is daniel's instagram handle and he does a lot of 3d printed components that go into these bike frames and more than only that and so we discuss a lot of these things also uh daniel's just got a lot of irons in the fire right now he's got a frame component like uh like headsets and a seat collar and stuff like that company called superb components we talk about that and we talk a lot about like engineering and, and sort of frame building process and I think it's super enlightening and his interest, uh, his, sorry, his perspective is different than that of my typical guest. So I wanted to, you know, bring him onto the show and try and pull out some of that, uh, especially 3d printed metal frame components, but not only that. So here's the interview. Yeah, I guess. Are we starting Yeah. now? Sure. All right. Uh, maybe I should start by saying. I've never built a bike before <laughs> and I'm on a frame building podcast, but, uh, yeah, I would say, I, I think, um, you know, I've always been like very interested in building things and I also really love biking. I, for me, it's kind of like that. I feel like it's just so pure and efficient. You're like just connected to the bike. It's just you and the bike. And then you can, you know, like sometimes when you do like a 60, 70, 80 mile ride and you like, you like on the top of the mountain and you look back and you're like, wow, I bike so far. And then you're also like, damn, I got a bike on the way back. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, yeah, I just really love cycling, love building things. And so I think it just kind of makes sense that put two and two together. Mm -hmm. And, and you went to school for mechanical engineering for an undergraduate degree. And then you continued with postgraduate studies and you're partway through a doctoral program, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, what mm -hmm. what were the things that made you think that you wanted to like get on that sort of path toward cuz i mean it's obviously it's like hands-on physical things problem solving and and it's more than just that too yeah i mean i feel like ever since i was a kid i just love building things so it was kind of it was an obvious 
kind of transition to go into engineering. Um, yeah, and I feel like uh, I think going to college, there was all the quest, always the question of whether I would do like electrical or software engineering. Um, and I mean, in retrospect, I feel like I should have went the software engineering route because that's where all the money was. But <laughs> I do like building things, and that's that's why I became a mechanical engineer. And in college, I did um, BattleBots. That was really fun. That is awesome. Uh, yeah, and then uh, in grad school, I specialized more in uh, it's called control systems. So it's a lot of like simulations, dynamics, and then uh, I built robots. So I programmed them to like climb stairs, balance on balls, drive around on two wheels, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw the video you sent me of the stair climber, and it's really cool because. I mean, I don't know where that project started, but if I imagined like, okay, you got to make something that's going to climb a stair, I would do it a lot more straightforward than that. But like <laughs> yours, it almost looked like you built a weird thing and then you realized that it was capable of built. Like it just doesn't look like the way that you would start if you, if the goal was to climb stairs, because it's like, it's like a, it's almost like a little Segway machine. That's like self-piloting that also has like a, a whole nother axis of motion. It can like end over end itself. It's a really interesting device. Yeah, let me see if I could still, it's been, I've been out of practice for this grad school stuff. So let me see if I can recall it. Um, so I, I would say that like the area of research where I was most interested in was this kind of intersection between uh, high performance robots and low cost uh, hardware, I would say. And so like all the robots I built were 3D printed. So like, the idea is that they could be injection molded in the future. But what it is, is that the whole theory behind it is that if you can take cheap stuff, cheap components, cheap motors, low grade, like consumer grade electronics, and you use advanced software and control, you can improve that performance. And then you could have these little cheap autonomous robots that drive around everywhere. So like, I think to build that stair climbing robot, I would say it's probably like on the order of 300 400 obviously that doesn't include time right that's just like you were to mass produce it and mm -hmm. if you think about all the robots now you mm -hmm. don't see them because they're all super expensive right it's not like you have like a robot running around your house because it probably costs like ten thousand mm dollars -hmm. so yeah it's grad school was kind of fun did a lot of like working with toy companies that was really big experience um yeah yeah, so you knew you knew from experiences prior to going to college, you just liked working with things and making things, and you also knew that you liked bikes, and so you've had projects since where you made things like what you're doing now with Nick Newhouse, and and actually making bikes and making parts of bikes and making bicycle components. Yeah, so I guess what well, I could give my whole story about grad school. Mm -hmm. So I. Uh... I was in grad school for quite a long time, actually. I think I started like burning out a little bit. I was riding bikes, so things are great, and you know, you have a lot of free time, but just kind of lacked like the guidance or the motivation to finish. Um, and then I was getting pretty burned out and like kind of anxious about what was going to happen next, like after grad school. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this was like towards the end of 2019, and then of course COVID came, and then it totally finished me. Um, so I was like pretty, pretty anxious all the time and probably a little bit depressed. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, uh, I ended up, I would say putting, hitting pause 
on the PhD. And then I started, I moved to the Bay Area to work in tech. Um, yeah, I was a, I got hired as a software engineer for a 3D printing company called Carbon. And I spent the last two years working there. And during that time when I moved to the Bay, I met Nick Newhouse. Mm-hmm. And then we started designing and building frames together. So I do a lot of his design and 3D printing work and a whole bunch of other miscellaneous uh, website photography, project management, all those different things. Yeah. Yeah. Nick has been a customer of mine for years. He bought the tube bender not too long after it was released, I think. And, uh, you know, like we've talked on the phone some, it's cool to see Did Was he doing anything with 3d printed metal parts prior to your getting involved with him? No. Um, we both figured that out together actually. So I've, quite confident in CAD, I would say. Um, and what we're trying to figure out, we're trying to figure out the chainstay yoke on his mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. And so I actually looked into several different options. Uh, CNC, obviously we have like all the ones available. Um, at the time, you weren't making your yoke. And I would say that your yoke is definitely one of the best yokes available. Mm, thank you. Um, the other ones, <laughs> it's like, they're like 300 bucks and you have to assemble it yourself, which uh-huh. is kind of like what's the point of paying 300 bucks for it uh-huh. um but yeah so looked into water jetting there so there's like several routes right you can like laser cut and bend a yoke yeah so that's like a plate yoke um i looked at water jetting just an entire thick one inch thick piece of steel um into the shape of a yoke and then kind of on a whim i was like well i do a lot of 3d printing in plastics let me just see how much it costs to print in metal and then when we did the numbers, we were actually really surprised that it was cheaper to print it in metal than even water jetting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've done a lot of printing and prototyping and testing since then. And now we just have a whole suite of like 3D printed parts on our bikes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, 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 it, it's cool to see that. I didn't realize that you hadn't made any metal 3D printed parts before getting involved with Nick. And it's been a theme more recently with some of my guests on this podcast to talk a lot more about engineering and CAD and design. And and I, I need to get some more old school builders as guests on the show again soon so it doesn't just turn into that. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, I do think that's something that you can really offer in this discussion today is, is talking about, you know, how you develop that and how you figure that out, the strengths, the weaknesses, the, you know, where, like I had this discussion last week with Ed Mason from Dwarf Design, but like the, there are just certain types of parts that really lend themselves to 3D printing and other ones don't. And bike parts, some of them, especially these frame components and stuff, they really can lend themselves very well, you know, because they're, they would be really hard to machine or something. And each one can be a little bit different. It doesn't necessarily, you know, add specific tooling or programming costs. So all yeah. sorts of, yeah. So I, I would first say, even though I hadn't printed in metal, I did at the time I was working at a 3d printing company, mm-hmm. um, which is actually pretty cool. They, I think they probably make the printer that prints the most production, like actual consumer production products. So like, for example, all the 3D printed bike saddles, have you tried one yet? No. Yeah, they're like 300 bucks and they're really, really nice. Um, Yeah, it's probably like the best saddle that I've ever ridden. Hmm. And I had to pay full price for it too. I didn't get a discount. (laughs) Wow, I've never even heard of that. That's awesome. Yeah, so 
so I, while I don't have experience printing in metal at the time, I did have a lot of knowledge both from grad school and also kind of the inner workings of a 3D printing company. Mm-hmm. So I was like developing the print algorithms and doing all the print testing. So I knew kind of the limitations and the 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 kind of design constraints and the process involved. And so they're all like all the 3D printing are pretty much similar. Like if you could do one type, you can do the rest. Yeah. Obviously some are a little bit higher risk and some are a little more expensive, but more or less if you can visualize a part printing, you can do it in metal. Yeah, I mean you even see like houses where they have concrete that gets I mean it looks it looks like a 3D printed concrete structure, you know? It's just like scaled up. I assume, like is that kind of what you're saying? Uh yeah. Well, I, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the construction 3D printing. Uh, it's pretty uh, wild. Yeah. I would say like parts that are about the size of a shoebox all print about the same. I see. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've even seen um, sometimes where people have like a six axis Fanuc robot or something and then they, you know, they have like a milling spindle on the end or they have like a print head. I, there's all different ways to extrude something, but uh but yeah, yeah no. Yeah. And and you were mentioning that to me also that like the, the the form factor, the size limitations, like you know, one of the big caveats uh, of 3D printing seems to be that that sh- yeah. sort of shoebox size. Yeah, and to give a little bit more perspective too, 3D printing's I don't know, been around for like 30 years, maybe 40, right? And like it's still very new. Um, and still like the wild west. Like there's a lot of random stuff going on. Um, but yeah, a lot of cool, like we were describing, kind of combining 3D printing with traditional manufacturing machines is pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else? I mean, I don't want to gloss over the your story too much. I, I think one thing that we can talk about a lot is 3D printing. I don't think there's any shortage of, uh, of things to talk about there. But um, yeah, I don't know, with your own story and, and getting to know Nick and getting more involved in making bikes. I mean, had you done any, had you like ever designed any of your own bicycle components or any of that stuff prior to getting involved with Nick? Yeah, so I think I've always like designed everything I could, right? I think that's like, it was just fun to be in CAD and designing stuff. So I did design bikes, but Nick was really like the missing piece because I didn't know anything about tubing diameters, or like uh, geometry, the little intricate details of how you dimension a bike to like um, build it out. Mm-hmm. So I I was playing around with bike CAD. I was doing um, the bike designs in 3D in Fusion, but I didn't. I hadn't actually like built a bike. And actually, like I said, I haven't built one yet either. I I know how to operate a mill. I can do like two and a half D tool pathing. I can do lathes. I just don't know how to weld. So, mm. and Nick's tried to teach me, but we were both like, you know what? Maybe <laughs> you should stick to the CAD, and I'll stick to the welding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you if you're getting by fine without it, and if that isn't the itch that you need to scratch, then you know, like it is a hard skill, and there's not necessarily that much payoff for for learning unless it's like you know part of your path. Yeah, I just need my own shop to actually get down and practice. I mean, that's the other funny thing why I do so much design is because I can't afford a shop, right? And so it's like all my ideas have to live virtually and live in my head or be contracted out. I can't actually like 
go into a shop and build something. So yeah, um, yeah, maybe we can just start the story with what I'm doing now. Um, so actually, I got I recently got laid off from Carbon. You know, I'm sure you heard in the news all the tech purging, mm-hmm. and I think everyone just kind of got scared and kind of like you know downsized. So that actually ended up being a pretty good opportunity because now, like I said earlier, I had a I had kind of hit pause on my PhD. Mm-hmm. And so now I actually have the time to uh, finish the PhD. And also I decided that I'm going to go full time. I wouldn't really call it frame building, but like essentially trying to push the state of the art frame building. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a lot of designs um, for Nick. I've also been working with a couple other uh, companies like Merlin, mm-hmm. just doing a little consulting, a little design work. Uh, it's kind of funny because I need to figure out how <laughs> still need to figure out like what to charge because right now I'm on unemployment insurance and it's like if you earn more than a set amount, mm. you don't get unemployment insurance. So yeah. that's also a new experience for me too. Um, and before people get butt hurt, just know that like I paid a lot of taxes this year from my like from my real work. And so like the unemployment insurance I'm getting is essentially like them giving my taxes back. Uh-huh. It's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, taxes in California are no joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So right now I'm just kind of exploring the space, um, seeing how, like, trying to address problems in frame building, both, you know, technical problems, but also, like, business or, uh, I should say, educational problems. So what I'm working on right now is a frame building forum. And we had kind of talked about it, and this is still, like, don't really know if this is a good idea or not. Maybe if the listeners can comment or something on the podcast to see if it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, working on a forum. I'm working on a component brand called Superb Components. Um, that's like, that's basically getting frame building specific components like headsets and clamps. And uh, yeah, it's kind of targeted towards builders like me and Nick who. We want to build complete bikes and kind of be competitive with production frames or like the big brands. And so you kind of need like OEM components to increase the profit margin or decrease the price on a complete sale. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what that brand is aiming to solve. Yeah, no, and, I uh, I took a look at that and that stuff looks sharp. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's... Uh, the, the mission statement is to not pay $100 for a headset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the sort of boutique handmade world is generally people are making stuff like really nice, you know, for the satisfaction of making it themselves and the satisfaction of making it really nice. And generally you know, like, uh, keeping the cost reasonable is not like the objective. And so cool to see a project that is, you know, serving sort of a different thesis. Yeah. I mean, like, I think my thoughts on that are like, you have to choose your battles, right? Like if you're going to make a frame here and, you know, I think there's really good arguments to make the frame here is because, you know, you, you can control the process. You don't have to like give in to marketing. You can do things the right way. Um, then like, you know, if you need to sell those frames, then if you can package them to be sold to a broader audience, like think about it, right? Like how many people do you know 
well, maybe if you think outside your circle, how many people can assemble a frame from just parts? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's, I would guess that only probably like 20% of cyclists can do that. And a lot of people, they, I think they get turned off by a custom frame because the lead time or that, like, they're like, oh, a frame, what can I do with that? Right. But um, if you can package it as a complete, I feel like you can open up to a broader market. Mm -hmm. So that's what that one's trying to, or su what Superb is trying to address. Yeah. Yeah. It, it always, you know, it costs money to figure things out on the upfront sort of like I think about my product line and it's like, I want to make it as easy for people to buy as possible to solve all their problems. I want everything to be just, you know, just like addresses all their needs. And usually that means that it's like, Oh, this thing isn't where I want it yet. So it's like, okay, I got to develop that or I got to find a solution or I got to find a better international shipping carrier. I need to like make my web store better. So it's like, there's some problem remaining here so I can fix that. And it's all stuff on the upfront, but like it's all serves, you know, like if you're a builder and you make bikes, you know, you want to, especially if you want to be a customer centered business that, you know, provides a good experience, then it's just like a lot of, a lot of different problems that need to be addressed creatively, yeah. which, which is an yeah. opportunity. It's, it's fun to solve problems. Yeah. So like, I don't know it, from your experience, right. Um, what percentage of the time or effort is actually making stuff and what percentage is the rest? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like 20% of it is like milling parts or something. It's it's not that much compared yeah. to the whole thing. The There's just so many other things. Like you imagine like a big company, and I can't believe this, but like I deal with all these business-to-business -business companies. They have like... They have like a department that's like accounting. They have two, <laughs> they have accounts receivable and accounts payable. It's like different people, you know, it's like, yeah. these aren't even huge companies. It's, it's insane to me that like, you know, like, well, I want my web store to do that. And like, yeah, I don't always make enough time for accounting. So like, I guess it does take actually a lot of labor to do that, but like there, there should be a better way. You know? So anyway, when you're like the one man band or whatever, so to speak, you know, if you do essentially everything in the business, it's like a small percentage of it actually gets spent on the nominal thing that you do. Most of it gets spent on like just general stuff that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the approach I've been looking at frame building as like a business, seeing how I can optimize things. Um, I think that's one of the things that I took away from learn from tech was just how fast they can move. Like you can imagine how do you get a hundred engineers like who are really smart working together towards the same goal, right? So I'm helping out with uh, like Nick and Peter at Merlin to get like kind of a project management approach or just kind of better documentation to help smooth out, you know, as you described that other 80% of work that you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't fun, you know, you just like making stuff and I just like designing stuff, but uh, yeah, it's, that's kind of the problems that I'm looking to solve or yeah. what I'm investigating in this period. Uh, that's valuable. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I feel like if you take running your business really seriously, then you end up thinking a lot about that business stuff and like that general stuff. You, you end up thinking about shop organization and about spreadsheets and about, you know, like figuring out some software thing and you figure like, you know, like, oh, this is the best shipping carrier. Like, this is a, a great web platform or, you know, like, I love this software for accounting and you know, whatever. You end up talking about the nuts and bolts of like the business more. And I do that a lot on this podcast lately. I end up talking a lot about <laughs> things that aren't even directly because you imagine like somebody who's really interested in frame building. 
they're getting into it, they're interested in discussions about bike geometry and components and how these things are interrelated, tubing selection. They're really interested in like the nuts and bolts of welding or something like that's like the most iconic, like it's like alchemy or something. It's like, Ooh, you're in the lab, you're welding, you know, it's like, Oh, it's, there's all this, uh, it's, it's, it's a charismatic symbolic representation of frame building is like flipping down the hood and doing some welding. But the reality is if you're actually trying to run your enterprise, all this other stuff gets in the way. And so then you turn your attention toward like fixing that (laughs) and trying to get that 80% of things that aren't what you nominally do, get that down to like 30%, you know, through like, adopting spreadsheets and stuff. So I, I, yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm always running the risk on this podcast of talking way too much about things that are not exactly frame building, but yeah, I feel like we should just rename this to a uh, shut up and build businesses podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that could be, that could yeah. be good. But on the other hand, it's like, I know the people, the people who are only interested in frame building mm-hmm. casually, they would probably want those discussions about the nuts and bolts of bike frame building and the people who are actually trying to make a go of it. They need resources that speak to their actual like issues. And so I do think like as a business resource, it could be valuable to those people, but it, it yeah. it's not always both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll just say to, to finish off that conversation, which is superb. Um, it is really just about getting bikes and having fun and building bikes. So like, I think what I'm doing differently is I'm offering discounts to small builders specifically, because, you know, if you build a frame, you're going to need a headset. Right. Um, and so that's, yeah. So check it out, buy some components. I need to pay rent. I don't have a job right now, but don't buy too many. Otherwise the uninsurance employment people are going to come to me. That's funny. (laughs) So you, I think I looked at that website. It said that like January, 2023 was when you were going to have some of that ready or. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, it's, it's in production right now. So cool. And Um, it said proudly made in Taiwan. So you've, you've designed these products in CAD. It was a couple different headsets and a seat, uh, like aluminum seat post binder and, was that the extent of it right now? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Cool. I, I want to expand more. Like the end goal is to just, you know, if you think about you buy like a um, S-Works, like whatever, $15,000 bike, right? They're putting like an $8 headset in it, you know? Like they're not putting like a <laughs> $180 Chris King headset, right? They're just eating all the margin. So um, it's kind of like bigger picture. That's what I identified that would really help um, Newhouse Metalworks is just having like being competitive by selling completes. Um, it's also like, it's also for our customers too. Like no one, if, if they could pay less for a working bike, like a nice yep. bike, then, you know, why not? Right. Um, and obviously there's nothing wrong with the really nice parts. Like a lot of our customers will like that too. It's just about providing more options. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we can, we can stop talking about building business and then we talk about oh, bikes. That's okay. Yeah. I do think that, um, yeah, I think when you get the design right and you know how to source materials and products, then uh, then you have the ability to really deliver a lot of value. So yeah, um, so, you want to talk about a uh, new house metalworks bikes? Let's do that. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of funny the origin story with Nick. So when I had moved to the Bay, I was like, I've always wanted to get a custom frame made um, because I knew like. Well, one, sorry, step back. I always wanted to build a custom frame. But when I moved to the Bay and I was just like, wow, I don't think I'm ever going to get a garage in the next 10 years. <laughs> so I was like, well, let me start looking for people who could like build a frame for me. And then 
I was looking at all the like the, the builders that you know, right? And I was I was thinking about getting a bike made by Waltworks just because I really appreciate how much information he had posted on the MTBR forum. And I also just like that his bikes are just like no frills, just mm -hmm. tubes welded together. Yeah. Um, but then I was browsing pink bike and then I saw an ad for like a custom frame, a used custom frame. And I was like, wow, I've never seen this brand before. And so I looked it up. Turns out it was Marin, which was uh, like an hour north of me. Uh, at the time, I was living in SF, so it was like 30 minutes north of me. So I contacted him, and it turns out he was building frames. He was kind of getting started, and then so he built me a frame. Loved it. Um, and then I was like, hey, I could design stuff. Let's try to design bikes. And that's how it all got started. Yeah, that's great. It's it's cool when you meet people that are like not so far away, and you have something in something in common there and it's it's especially cool too that you can like that uh dynamic between two people who have complementary skill sets who can help each other out you know you each bring something to the table is pretty special yeah definitely so like nick is a really good fabricator and he's also a much better mountain biker than me i think i'm pretty decent too i'm probably like 80th percentile but he's he's like a step above me um you, i think you do you mountain bike? Uh, poorly, yeah. I, I love the idea of it. We don't have great mountain bike trails where I live, and I also haven't done it much until the last couple of years. So, like, I'm really not very good at it, but I love it. Yeah, you should. You should come. Uh, are you planning to go to the Made Bike Show? I think I will. Probably, yeah. I need yeah, to. If you want a pit stop in California, or mm -hmm. I think we're planning to go there too. If you want to meet up and ride up there, uh, that I... sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. Let's plan something. Yeah, I've been meaning to get out west again for a million reasons, but I wanna wanna visit White Industries, and I have some friends in uh, in the Bay and other places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny talking about mountain biking. So, uh, I think like it's I would say the difference between a good rider, like I think there's there's two distinct categories. It's like you encounter something sketchy, right? And then there's like the rider who like will just lean into it and just fully commit. And then the other rider who like breaks and slows down. Right. Mm -hmm. So Nick is definitely like I, the way he rides sometimes is like his amygdala, amygdala is damaged. And so he'll just like just fully commit, lean in and just go through things. And I'll just like front wheel slips a little bit. And I'm like, I'll grab the brake a little bit. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So I think that's one complimentary skill set is that he's a he's a pretty good mountain biker. And so I think he knows a lot about geometry and he could feel the bike um, like flex and the characteristics. And he's been mountain biking all his life. And then um, the other thing, like the other complimentary skill set is I'm really good at design and engineering. And so I think we work really well together because sometimes you don't want like as a fabricator, you're kind of your world is is building things with what you have and putting them together. And then as a designer, you like don't have to worry about that. That doesn't really bound you. And so you can like come up with new designs or new prototypes or new workflows and not have to be like, you, you have the freedom to think about that kind of stuff and a little bit less about like making the ends meet, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's been a pretty good relationship. And I feel like, uh, yeah, we've, we've progressed the business quite a bit. I think last year we did 60 or 70 frames. Nice. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot. I don't know. I don't know how people find us, but we're really grateful for it. Yeah. Um, and I should honestly, I should have Nick on the show sometime too, um, for sure, because his experience is huge. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I think as a fabricator or as a machinist or as a anything really, what you do sometimes is you try and make things easier for yourself, and you say, "Well, I know." Like, well, I mean, I do this all the time and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. But like, for instance, in my CNC mill, I have uh, M6 and M8 taps so that I can make internal threads at, you know, six and eight millimeter common thread size. Okay. So in my brain, those are just little things or like when I'm designing a part to be CNC machined, like an inside corner radius will be something that I know that I can hit with one of the end mills that I keep in my machine and those sorts of things. You know, I'm thinking about how would I hold on to that as I engineer it, you know, like I, I, I'm engineering it for, you know, this design for manufacture essentially, but everybody does that when they know how to make something, they design it in a way that they can imagine that it wouldn't be a total, you know, living hell to make it. And so anyway, I think, that is really, there's a great utility in being able to do that. On the other hand, what if you had no idea how things were made and you just designed what you wanted for purpose and then you figured out how to make it? That could sometimes be more valuable or it, it could bring a different kind of value, right? Yeah, I think that's kind of funny because like I have very little experience in machining, right? And so like in a way it's been really helpful because I basically started off 3D printing like in grad school. Right. And so I've been doing it for like 10 years now. Um, and so it's kind of funny when you have a naive approach to something, you're not really bound by, like, I would say certain ways of thinking. And so like when I design things, I design it in a workflow and with the mindset of it to be 3D printed. Yeah. And it <laughs> kind of gives me a freedom or a different way of looking at things. And so if you told me, like for me, the thing that blows my mind is how you fixture something in like CNC machining. like. Mm -hmm that that whole process i feel like you have to just learn from experience and i can't visualize that and so i can't design cnc parts well yeah no it is i mean i think probably i take it for granted that i've learned that stuff slowly over the years it doesn't seem that hard to me but but also yeah i mean like there's a lot of hard lessons along the way that inform your judgment about it too yeah for sure yeah so uh going back to newhouse metalworks mm -hmm. um I think what really motivates me to to work with Nick to help like design and build the bikes and why I would like custom frame building to begin with is that we can actually use it to solve problems. Um, so and this is kind of working in a tech company, I kind of realized that everyone kind of has their own bias and wears their own hat. Um, and like, ultimately, business is business, right? That's the reason why I got laid off, even though I was really hungry and curious and i thought i was developing new stuff there um but about going back to the custom frame building i think the cool thing is that we can make decisions and make bikes that aren't driven by business or marketing decisions right so like if you look at the geometries of our mountain bikes they're actually quite not progressive right and that's kind of on purpose because i feel like all the mountain bike marketing is driven by people riding in Pacific Northwest and mm -hmm. riding in Santa Cruz. And obviously they're really, really high skill level too, because you know, like they're doing it because they're passionate about it. Right. Yeah. But that's not representative majority of the riding. And so having those kind of really aggressive geometries might work for some people and you know, they're fun, but 
depending on your skill level, your fitness level, your age, they're not always appropriate. And so we don't have to follow those trends. We can just make good bikes. You know, that's a really interesting point because you think, oh, well, I think of a couple people in specific, but you know, like, let's say I was going to buy a bike, like a mountain bike that was engineered by somebody who was developed by somebody. And wouldn't I want that person who developed it to be a hell of a rider? Because like they would, they would know how to develop a mountain bike. Right. But, but that's a good point to think that like, maybe they developed it for the kind of rider that they are somebody who does, you know, they, they don't have that chicken out reflex like you were describing <laughs> yeah. and yeah. they'll just send it off a cliff and like, they're just, you know, unafraid and but then, and I mean, I think about that. I have a Reeb Squeeb, which is like such a cool bike and it's way too much bike for me, but I just love it. Like it's almost, I mean, it's not that I wouldn't ride it or I, d I don't ride it, but like it's, it's just way too much travel for me and for the places that I ride, but it's just so beautiful and so cool in the engineering. And I love that part of it uh, big time, but yeah, it's like, it, it means a lot to me to know that Adam Procise, who's a hell of a rider developed it. But I like, I'm never going to ride like that. You know, like that ship has sailed. I just like, I don't have the, I don't have the stomach for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually do think your point about braking is, is right. Because when you're braking, the bike is totally different. Like a lot of the really high level riders, they just don't brake, right? Like that's how they're fast or they brake, but in certain points and they know how to brake well and they could commit to like different turns or maneuvers. And so when a bike is braking, it's under totally different loads like the fork sags you have more pressure on your front wheel less pressure in the back the geometry changes everything and so like yeah it's it's kind of hard because you do want to have like a high performance bike that could be ridden really hard but also you have to kind of cater to the average rider in a way like you know if if we want we can build any geometry we can but we just feel like from our riding and where we like to ride and what we like to do that the kind of moderate we take like elements of the whole progressive long slack low geometry and then we take the kind of the other elements of what makes a bike rideable for multiple hours right and then we kind of combine the two and so you get like a fun little package yeah i would say one of my biggest pet peeves and again it comes from the bias of like kind of the mountain bike media and mountain bike companies is water bottles. And that's one like problem that I spent a lot of time solving on our bikes. And so if you think about it, like I grew up in Southern California, so it's like the desert, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to have two bottles. Otherwise you're riding for like 40 minutes. Right. Yeah. Whereas like in PNW or like, uh, Santa Cruz, it's so wet and moist and like, you don't need to drink that much water. And so most, bikes even hardtails will only come with one bottle um and like if you're in the southwest or you know other really dry climates you really need two bottles otherwise you kind of have a like that's actually the main reason why i ride a hardtail most of the time is just because i can carry more water and i don't have to wear a backpack and i can just go on longer rides that's a really good point yeah yeah so the other cool thing that we do and it kind of relates to my process and my like 3d printing workflow is that we can offer a really, really big size range. So we actually have 16 different sizes. Um, and the reason why is because we use a digital workflow for the design. Yeah. So everything's designed in CAD and like, uh, how I describe it is you have, and I think you showed this in one of your YouTube videos mm -hmm. using fusion, 
um, you have a parameter table and then you enter in like the stack reach head to length, all that kind of stuff in a 2d sketch. I also have like the 2d, uh, the tubing diameters. Um, and then it kind of generates the bike right in 3d world. And in my case, it generates, uh, this, this yoke, it's kind of like a seat tube lug. You could think of it, but we call it the Y yoke. Mm-hmm. Um, it generates this Y yoke to be 3D printed later. And so you get kind of almost like a Lego style uh, design. Yeah. And then not only that, but once you have the 3D model, it automatically regenerates all the 2D construction drawings. So you yeah. end up with like eight different pages of, uh, you know, the, the jig setup, the how to miter the front triangle, how to miter the chain stays, seat stays, everything. Yeah. Um, so it's a really optimized process. And that's how we can get such a big size range is because essentially you do one really detailed model in CAD. And then from that, you could kind of branch it out into whole different size range. Yeah. Yeah. And you could, I don't know if you do different wheel diameters, probably on your mountain bikes you do, but like, that's an option, right? It's like, that can just be another parameter. Like I had uh, Georgina Terry on the podcast two years ago or something, but you know, she talked about building bicycles with not 700 C wheels like road bikes and how that was like such a crazy idea back in the eighties when she started doing it. But like, you know, like it made, made a lot of sense for people. It's just another parameter and the easier you make it to adjust those things without it, like throwing a wrench into your process, like the better your bikes will fit the needs of your customers. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually one of the main point or main reasons why I started designing bikes is I'm Asian. Um, I know you can't tell cause it's a podcast, but, um, yeah, a lot of my friends are Asian and they're female and the average height of like a female in the United States is actually five, four. But if you look at all the geometry charts and all the different bike designs, they all kind of cut off after five, four. It's like you have all your normal sizes and then it's like five, six to five, zero you have one size, right? Uh-huh. And so that's one cool thing about custom is that we can make the same amount of granular steps between sizes throughout the entire size range. We don't have to order like, you know, a hundred bikes of one size. We can make mm-hmm. whatever we want. Yeah. Um, and to the point about small wheels, it's definitely one of those things where uh, we have to fight against a lot of marketing. Yeah. But to, you know, like, yeah, uh, you, you see people riding 29 inch wheels everywhere, but like if you're five, 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 four, you know, you could get a lot more benefit from a smaller wheel. Like, for example, a practical example, right? Like for for someone who's like five, four range, if you use 29 inch wheels because of the BB drop and uh, kind of the down tube angle, you could probably only fit one bottle in the main triangle, mm-hmm. right? But then if you use 27.5 wheels, you have less BB drop, the down tube angle is a little less aggressive, and then you can fit two bottles, right? So it's like these kind of small trade-offs, a big company is just going to be like, eh, just put 29-inch wheels, don't want to deal with the marketing. Yeah. Um, or but, or just like the it could be a, a complication to their manufacturing process to have, you know, two different kinds of wheels that they have to manage in inventory and supply lines and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, so the whole 3D workflow that we use in 3D printing is actually to to like really, it actually speeds up the process quite a bit. And that's the main reason I'm why sure we do it, it. We don't just do it to like, you know, to have like jewelry on the bikes. It's actually every part that we design is 
functional. It's either meant to save time or to uh, save cost. That Y yoke, um, and when I post about our podcast on Instagram, I'm sure I'll have one of the nine photos that I share be the Y yoke. But but anyway, or you guys can just <laughs> find find these photos on Newhouse Metalworks or on your Instagram or whatever. But um, but anyway, the Y yoke it it solves a lot of problems and i think yeah the fabrication time for anybody who's built you know a bike this the seat stay attachment the uh top tube mitering like you, you don't have a top tube miter and you have this you know so you have a straight cut on your top tube and you have a straight cut on e either seat stay and then it's this one piece that's 3d printed per your unique drawing for this frame and it slides into position looks like looks like you just weld it in yeah yeah so that's actually um so the reason why it's called Y yoke is actually because uh, it looks like a Y and it's also my last name. And I've always wanted, like in grad school, you learn about all the different equations. And I always thought it'd be like, you're a real baller when you have a consonant named after you, you know, like a K <laughs> or A or something. Um, but for this part in particular, I know people do this and I, I, I'm sure someone's done something similar before. But typically people print the entire seat tube yoke or sorry, seat tube lug. So they actually print part of the seat tube mm -hmm. and the Y or the, yeah, the whole Y yoke, what we're calling it. Um, but this is an example of kind of my different approach to 3D printing is that if I don't have to print a tube, I won't, right? Because it adds cost and also you're almost certain that because the seat tube is perpendicular to the to the seat stays and the top tube, that something's going to be warped, right? Because 3D printing only is accurate in one direction. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to be accurate in two. And so this part is very optimized. It costs like roughly in steel, it costs us roughly like 30, 40 bucks to print it. But it saves a lot of time and obviously it looks really cool too. Yeah, it's very um, distinct. Does that get silver brazed or does that get TIG welded? It gets TIG welded. Cool. You you probably could silver braze something like that. There's just quite a lot of surface area there, right? Yeah. I think just TIG is faster. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also I'm not sure how how strong the silver braze joint would be. Um, okay. in that area, not my area of expertise for sure. I don't do any brazing. So um, silver brazing is not very strong unless you have like lots of area and then there's a lot of shear force, you know, like, um, like a sleeve joint and the, the way that I'm, I'm imagining the Y thing in my head, I think there's a fair amount of surface area. So I would think that it would hold it pretty well. And, but yeah, you'd have to preheat it for a while. Also, like, I know if you have like an outside and an inside tube, you want, I don't know, something like five thousandths of an inch or like, you know, 0 0.1 millimeter or something as like your your wiggle room, uh, something like that. You don't want it to be huge and you don't want it to actually be a tight press fit. And so I don't know if you could consistently hold that with the 3D printed process. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Never tried it. But uh, yeah, I would love to test that. Um, I would say also that we haven't tested this because we don't have the resources to test. And I would love to set up like some sort of testing lab just specifically for frame building. Mm -hmm. But we do think that it adds this like kind of ride quality to the rear end of the bike. Because if you look at the, the design, it's kind of like a clamshell that you that wraps around the seat tube. So it ends up making this really stiff bulkhead at 
that joint with the seat tube, which is typically thicker, and the top tube and the seat stays. So, like, how, again, we don't know if this is actually the case because it's all feel, but it feels like the front and the rear triangle kind of flex together as one big spring. Um, and so I think that's what kind of gives our bikes the unique ride quality. It also allows us to use, because it distributes the stress a little bit better at this, um, the seat tube, it allows us to use a little thinner uh, seat stays and also not have to reinforce them as much. Nice. Do you do a seat stay bridge ever? Uh, no, we don't do it anymore. Nice. I, I've heard yeah. so many heated opinions. Now, when you get that frame forum up, that's that's what we need to to like drive traffic and to make this thing a hit is you need to like start those threads that um people are just like dying to voice their opinion about like I know we need a chain stay length thread <laughs> that just like actually I thought about just banning the word chain stay length just because <laughs> like that always ends up being a really big derailed yeah, or, conversation or, or like you know any of these you know slack had two bangles or any of these things where you know on the one hand you have people really pushing it in one direction and then you have like sort of the the retro grouches or the whatever you know pick your pick your uh sides of it but yeah there's a lot of these discussions that just or i one of my favorite things i think about a lot they say like the best way to get your question answered on the internet is not to ask the question but to propose a known wrong solution <laughs> you know it's like because people love yeah. correcting you so you know if yeah, that, that's, great. that's how we get the forum to take off is we start we start suggesting all this like wrong stuff and then we just wait for people to come in and tell us that we <laughs> yeah Let, let's let's make a list so seat stay bridges uh -huh. right um what chain stay length had uh -huh. to bangle what else what else gets the people riled so up? yeah threaded bottom brackets are they just done wrong when they're creaking or is it inherently a flawed design that's right. a really hot one yeah okay threaded bottom brackets what else is there <laughs> uh yeah is 30.9 a valid seat post diameter is it just 31.6 i don't know yeah there, there's a million of them I, I don't even have my finger on the pulse nearly as much as many of the listeners of this show probably do <laughs> hopefully our listeners of the show do not have the finger on pulse on that <laughs> <laughs> to be uh, clear I, the, the funny thing is like last year i i posted a thread about 3d printing on mtbr just kind of i wanted you know uh, so i would say also and we could talk a little bit about the forum now um I kind of model, like, if you think about what you've learned from machining or from uh, whatever, right? You learned a lot from the internet, either forums or YouTube or, uh, yeah. And mm -hmm. one big thing is kind of what I'm modeling this form after is the open source community. Mm -hmm. So like I was saying earlier, I my entire background is in mechanical engineering. But I learned software engineering from a website called Stack Overflow. Oh which yeah. It's basically like a forum. And yep. I would say like probably 99% of the engineers learn their engineer or sorry, 99% of their software engineers learn from that website. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really powerful, right? And so like I'm hoping that there will be we can build like a community where we can share ideas and help each other out. Um, but again, last year I posted an MTBR and you guys let me down. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, when I make those posts, I know it's not I don't make it to like the people who are commenting. It, I know if there's a silent majority who's reading it. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm hoping that that silent majority can come to this forum if I ever get to or if I ever decide to make it real mm -hmm. and we can have good discussions about chain stay length and uh, what was it? Um, break seat, seat stay bridges. 
Yeah, yeah, and all these things. Yeah, not only the divisive opinion, the ones that are rooted in largely in opinion that are hard to objectively verify. It's cool when people just speak from experience about what they like or what they thought worked, and they're they're just clear that it's like, oh, this is just what I do. I seem to like it. I have these reasons. But I feel like a lot of the bickering you see, like I know the Facebook Frame Builders group is not something that I, it's not that all of it's garbage, but there's a lot of it that I don't like. And a lot of that is just that it's like, people just have the kind of a difference of perspective and they're, they're kind of at war with each other. But like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you, do you want to go through the list of the parts? Um, Cause I, later I do want to kind of get to um, the, how to 3d print but I think it'd absolutely be fun to go through the parts yeah to, to see what's useful and what's not right fire away um yeah so the chainstay yoke uh that one I think for us it's a huge win it's both very cheap and also saves us a lot of time um then from there I would say the next one would be all the little ports so that's one thing that I feel like I, I haven't seen anyone else 3D print ports yet. Um, but the way I design them is they're really easy to use. You just slot the tube and then you just uh, put in the port and braze it on. One cool thing about the port that we do is we actually 3D print this little rubber grommet that kind of almost like a drywall, um, what do they call it, drywall anchor, that you kind of insert it into the 3D printed port and then when you slide in the uh, housing, it expands little prongs and locks it in. So that's been pretty cool for us. Um, the other thing I talked about earlier is how much I care about water bottles in the front triangle. Mm -hmm. So I designed this bottle bracket that angles the bottle a little bit out of the seat tube. That way you could use regular um, braze-on bosses, the, the regular threaded ones, not the studs, to get a bottle on the seat tube. Oh, um, Wait, so yeah, how, that is that, pretty cool. how is that oriented exactly? It angles, so it angles the bottle bosses out by, I think, five degrees, just enough so that the top boss doesn't have to penetrate the seat tube. Oh, huh. Yeah. I think, yeah, and also it acts as there's like a room for a tube strap. Um, not that anyone should use that because everyone should be putting two bottles on their hardtail. Because there's no point to be riding a hardtail without two bottles. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's a really good example of, I think, something that 3D printing can solve, right? Is that, you know, I got a quote for it to be CNC machined. And at the quantity that we use it, it was like 20 bucks. But the 3D print for that part is like $10, $15. Yeah, because um, it has so, yeah. so much to do with just the volume of material. Yeah, exactly. And so that one's, it's it's like a small, cheap thing that was pretty easy to design that solves a really big problem. And so that one's a pretty big win for us. Um, then we've done some dropouts and especially UDH dropouts. Um, I have mixed feelings about that on steel bikes. I've tried so many different designs and they just don't really pan out that well. UDH is definitely not designed for metal bikes. They're designed for carbon bikes in mind. So yeah. um, we've kind of strayed away from that, but we've tried a couple dropouts and they're a huge time savings. Um, I would say like they probably save on a gravel bike with the flat mount printed. It probably saves like two hours of work on a steel bike 
and on a titanium bike, if you could print the whole dropout, probably saves three or four hours of time. Um, maybe that's a little overestimating. Yeah, it's it's wild though. Like the the flat mount thing is just a total total nightmare for metal bike builders, and the there are some solutions, but man, there's there's so many trade offs. Yeah, we have a design that we're testing right now, which is just a little. We call it the flat mount adapter. It's just a little nub, so you don't have to print the whole dropout because when you're printing the whole dropout, you're, that's probably the hardest thing to do to 3D print on a bike. Um, you have to have all your CAD, like all your ducks in order, your CAD right, your process right, your, your communication with the 3D printer right, or 3D printing manufacturer correct. Um, but there's like slightly lower hanging fruit of just printing the adapter. So you imagine it's just like a tube with pre-miter for the dropout and with the little, uh, mm -hmm. what do you call it? The, the, the flat mount bosses on it. Yeah. Um, so that one's that one we're testing in steel. I think it'd be pretty useful in titanium. Um, just haven't tested that on titanium bike yet because I just don't like gravel bikes. <laughs> <laughs> it's another hot that's, take. Uh, that's my opinion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does not represent the people I work with. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's all the parts. Um, yeah, I would say the other area that I'm looking into right now is 3D printed fixtures, and I'm sure you've played around with that before, have you? Yeah, definitely a little bit, um, and I've I've thought about it a lot too, just because like once you start 3D printing things, it becomes obvious like this the you're just only limited to your imagination. I've already said quite a long time ago that I want to make you know, YouTube series about digital fabrication. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but like, no, I do, I do want to make, about. I do want to make a YouTube series on digital fabrication because it's so accessible to frame builders, you know, like 2d drawings that then you, sh you send out to a laser cut shop, like send cut send, or I've been using laser bros recently out of North Carolina. <laughs> They're like, that's pretty funny. they have a website a that's, name. It's just like it's just like uh, send cut send, but they're I don't know I like them a little bit better right now, so like they've been doing good work for me, and so shout out to Laser Bros. But also there's are they um, a, are they a sponsor of the podcast? <laughs> yeah, maybe I don't know. <laughs> they, they they did such such good turnaround for me on some stuff uh, as a first time customer. I was very impressed, but um, but yeah, I want to do yeah. So like I think laser cut parts are just so accessible to people because like the the cost per piece is inherently pretty low for like thin small form factor stuff anyway so even if yeah. you're paying like through the nose for it it's like it's kind of like when i'm at the store and i buy like the most the most uh fancy pants rice you know i get like the jasmine rice or whatever it's like the really it's like you can't go broke buying rice you know like a <laughs> little laser cut bike parts yeah. like even if you pay three times more than you would at quantity they're still cheap and so that's accessible but then also um, 3d printing and metals and 3d printing and plastics, not for the frame components, but like little cable guides and all that sort of stuff. Like you're mentioning, like your little uh, feral thing that you do for the internal cable routing, but also, um, 3d printing fixtures and stuff on my tooling. There's, there's a, a handful of little 3d printed stuff that you can add on that, you know, expands the capability or that allows you to check tire clearance and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like I would say, one of my most successful 3d printed projects the ones that the one that nick loves the most is this really stupid clamp for a curved uh brace seat mm -hmm. stay brake 
or sorry the seat stay chain stay brace by the disc brake yeah yeah and and to add more drama to the discussion you can also use it for the seat stay bridge too um, <laughs> but yeah apparently i didn't realize this was again it's kind of it's kind of cool to be separated from the fabrication um like i didn't realize how annoying it was to hold on to these curved braces because you have to miter it at almost like a tangent angle mm-hmm. and it's all the tube is all curved and deformed and like nick's tried a whole bunch of different tube holders to, to hold on to this uh specifically this seat stay whatever chain stay bridge mm-hmm. um, and so i ended up just printing like five or six different sizes of angles and essentially what you do is that you just clamp the two clamp the brace in between two clamshells and the brace sorry let me get this right you clamp the brace with the two clamshells and then the clamshell is just printed to a certain angle so all you do is you just index the bottom of the clamshell to your vise and then it holds it at the perfect angle and you just miter it and then you flip it and then you miter it again and then it's done yeah um and uh yeah I wonder on that part too, it's possible that you could make it the same, but then possibly you could just have like an array of holes for like dowel pins. And then you would, you know, it would have some instructional design or there'd be some key or something. And then you put the dowel pins in the appropriate corresponding holes so that it works to set the angle against the vice jar. So, you know, there's whatever, but like when it's 3d printed and it's so cheap, like you don't even really care. You just print five versions. Yeah, that, that's funny that you say that, right? Because I think that's the difference of what, where I come from, from 3D printing world. It's like, to me, it's just like, why not just print five of them? Because mm-hmm. then you just pull out of a box and use it, right? Yep. And from my perspective, it is annoying because you have to branch out the CAD. You have to, you know, just copy and paste the CAD multiple times uh-huh. and change the dimensions. But like, for example, this one also, this design also spaces out the um, two miters so that it's a perfect match to the um, break tab. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So like essentially it's an intelligent clamshell. You like clamp it, you eyeball it, you miter it, and it comes out correct every single time. That's great. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. Like that's where I think there's still a lot more space to be explored in 3D printing um, fixtures. Yeah. I know it's actually, I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. I think you had mentioned in one of the podcasts, there was somebody who uh, was printing dies that were reinforced with bending dies that were reinforced with uh, plates. Was that on one of your podcasts? I believe my friend Matt, who lives in town here, shout out to Matt. Um, shout out to Matt. <laughs> shout out to Matt. He bought a, I think he has more than one. He has at least one diacro bender, like a number one or a number two. And uh, he was bending not bike stuff, although he is very into bicycles and he's built like a tall bike and s- some other uh, bike shenanigans. But anyway, but I think, yeah, it was like, I think it was laser cut plate or maybe he just cut up the plate and then it was 3D printed dies. And I think I'm remembering this correctly. There's a yeah. there's a 2% chance that he talked about it and somebody else did it. And now I would feel really bad <laughs> crediting it to the wrong person on the podcast. But I'm pretty sure Matt did this first as yeah. far as I knew. And uh, But anyway, yeah, apparently it worked. And yeah. um, it's awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely, that's, I actually just bought like a pretty chunky, um, 3d printer uh like it it's called the lulzbot taz workhorse i used it a lot in grad school uh-huh. it's different from all the other like hobby printers it, it works the same way but the biggest difference is that it prints with a thicker filament mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So you can really lay down fat beads. So nice. it prints like twice as fast and you get a lot more layer adhesion because they're just so much more plastic per layer. Um, but I was hoping to use that and actually explore like forming and fixturing with 3D printed. Um, yeah, essentially with a 3D printer. Um, yeah, no, it's cool. I saw, I think you're right. Cause I did at one point find his Instagram and I saw that it was really cool stuff. His name was Mark. He's, or Matt. My, yeah, Matt the Maker, yeah. all one word. That's who I'm thinking of. My friend who yeah. did the yeah sandwiching the 3D printed die inside of a thing. Yeah. Let's just let's just say it was Matt. But yeah, yeah we'll just say it was work, Matt. Matt. Well, yeah. and I mean, uh, I <laughs> I love the revenue that I get from selling interchangeable bend dies to all of my tube bender customers. But here's a for instance: you could look at the geometry on a bend die, like I sell. Like let's say it was my uh, six and three quarter center line radius bending die for a inch and three eighths tube. And let's say you really wish that you could bend a one inch tube to the same center line radius. If you are familiar with 3D CAD modeling at all, it would not be terribly hard to draw the essentially the net difference between these two into a solid model and then send it to print. And it would maybe work for a period of time. I do think yeah, definitely one... just only for a period of time, definitely should just buy the real one. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I think there, there's a couple issues there that, you know, it doesn't hold up forever. I think another thing that I learned as I studied tube benders and started to make them is just that the tube, uh, especially thin wall tubes, they are very, we'll say impressionable. Like if you have a rough surface texture to your bending die that can very easily be impressed onto the surface of the tube and you can see that as an artifact, you know? So like if you had really chunky, nasty machining that just wasn't that smooth, like you were doing a 3D machining toolpath with a ball mill and you left a coarse step over or something that would get, you know, that it would be like embossed into the surface of the tube and that would probably be objectionable. So there, you'd have those sorts of considerations. And yet I think that it would be super neat to do it anyway and see what happened. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like if you're building, if you're building like more than five frames, it makes a lot of sense to just buy your tube bender. But mm-hmm. I think there's like a space where you're, you're prototyping or you're getting started or you're just doing it for a hobby that, yeah. um, yeah, 3D printed tooling could be really useful. And here's one is uh, my friend Sean, because, um, yeah, he, he built forming dies that you use a, like a Kurt Weiss essentially to form, like, uh, you know, if you don't need a chainstay yoke or if you don't want to go to that level, you just want to form a chainstay a little bit around that pinch point of the chain ring and the tire. Um, you People make all sorts of stuff to do that, like dimpling, they call that. But I, I don't really like to call it dimpling because I don't I feel like I, to me, it doesn't look appropriate when you see like the really harsh edges of like a, a crushed sort of tube. I feel like that to me, it just looks like a crack is going to propagate out of that sometimes. But I would like to smush it or form it as gracefully as I can. That's kind of my M.O., and you see people who've made tooling like that out of wood or out of aluminum or whatever, but you can 3D print that stuff. And we did that and it worked incredibly well. Yeah. Yeah. Should we add dimpling to the list of hot topics? <laughs> I, I might be in the minority of people who take any sort of issue with no, that. No, no. Nick, Nick feels the same way. That's why we do a lot of, uh, yeah, that's why we 3D print our yokes instead of dimpling and form them. Yeah. I um, mean, I think there's a lot of forming that can be done that won't necessarily 
make the tube look like it's about to split in half. But I do see (laughs) sometimes people, and I've done this on my earlier frames when I just didn't have the tooling and I didn't, I wasn't very experienced with design or with metal forming and I would just try and get it done. And I'd be like, wow, I didn't really like the way that came out so good. You know, it just looks like, I don't know. Yeah. See, anyway, you you learn how to refine these things. There was a, a Steve Potts flicker, the, the Flickr account that belongs to Steve Potts, he has on there some pictures of some tube forming dies for chainstays. And they are, I think, some of the smartest design that I've seen for just making like a round tube that you would bend because it's a titanium round tube, straight tube that you start with. And then, you know, he bends it and then he smushes it. And it's just like a really nice design for a die. And so when I think about, you know, 3D designing something that I would either machine or 3D print to smush tubes, I would follow along somewhat in that vein yeah going going off that idea i feel like one thing that i've been wanting to try is actually printing the dimple onto the bending die mm-hmm. and so i think and i have to verify this but i like based on what i know about how splines are calculated in in uh well mathematically in like cad mm-hmm. they're actually very analogous to the stiffness and of a material like if you were to um let's say you want to draw a spline that passes through three points mm-hmm. it's actually equivalent to having a strip of solid material you bend it around those three points and the stiffness of the material determines how the spline looks it's it's an analogous like uh hmm. mathematical and physical relationship that is kind of blowing my mind. I'm trying to I'm trying to process that. I think that makes sense. Uh, very interesting. I could be wrong, but that's what I learned like maybe six years ago. Um, but yeah, that's how they calculate splines. And so I was thinking that if you know how in fusion you can do very smooth transitions between you know like one body to another body, back to like circle oval circle or circled dimpled circle. Mm-hmm. Um, Sort of. I, I mean, theory, I'm not the best using... modeler, so I don't know if I know all of the tricks that you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in theory, I think that when it calculates that surface, it has to do like an optimal surface, right? Like it's not going to create any jagged edges anywhere. And so I'm thinking that you could print like a perfect, perfectly, I don't know how to describe it, comfortable die for your seat stay. Mm-hmm. And you can like bend it and dimple it at the same time. And I think if you're dimpling it and you're bending it at the same time, I think you can achieve a tighter bend radius. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, this is all theory. And that's why I think like if you have a 3D printer, which I spent a lot of money buying one just recently, um, you can test these things out pretty quickly, right? If you were to machine these dies, I'm sure they'll come out great, but it's like, yeah time and cost and all exactly yeah yeah and it's like you don't need it to be long you don't need it to be long wearing in order to test it you'll get you'll get some relevant you know data out of the first tests and then and then if it's worth it you know there was a the guy who does rad bicycle company he's in michigan and i was touring his shop like five years ago and uh he had built like some chainstay forming dies and he was showing me around his shop and I looked, I'm like, oh, those are pretty slick, pretty slick. And I really made a nice shape. And then I looked a little bit closer and I'm like, are those tool steel? Like he had a buddy at the place that he works, CNC <laughs> machine them out of tool steel. And I'm like, damn, that is badass. But like, it's just a really expensive, you know, it's like you better, better have some confidence that you made the tool 
to the right design because like you know it'd be one thing to cnc machine them out of aluminum but like damn tool steel that's okay wow <laughs> he ain't <Yeah>. playing <laughs> <laughs> yeah the got the buddy hookup yeah. yeah yeah well i think that's a good transition to 3d printing yes. um so what we're talking about right is like kind of fixtures and tooling so i mm -hmm. think that's one category of 3d printing that it's it's actually being used a lot actually question for you mm -hmm. where this this blew my mind when i figured it out and i figured it out because i was working at a 3d printing company what industry do you think uses 3d printing the most hmm yeah i don't know i mean take yeah. a guess oh take a guess i mean uh what like aerospace or something no i mean i guess it's, it's actually it's actually maybe not low. reliable because like you know you need you need you want to use a more conservative approach that you know is proven or so, i don't know yeah it's actually dental markets dental oh yeah that makes sense yeah so like i think i don't know probably six ten something years ago there was a company that came out um that essentially what they do is they scan your teeth mm -hmm. and then they 3d print a model of your teeth and then they vacuum form a plastic liner on top and once so that company kind of perfected that process and i think the patent expired and so there's a lot of other companies that are popping up doing uh those orthodontics and so that's actually the biggest market of 3d printing wow um yeah it's that kind of funny huh that makes perfect sense too yeah the this guy that i follow on instagram had vice chief he f figured out how to scan his head or he had the equipment to do that or something and then he, he 3d printed his own head so he could like <laughs> he could like test like eyeglasses on it and i'm like wow that's that's pretty that's a flex right there yeah that's pretty next level yeah yeah so i would say there's like several different categories there's like the the at the the most entry level is like the hobbyist and maker um, and that's like you go on Thingiverse and you just print out something for fun, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's like the entry level, like three, four, five hundred dollar uh, FDM printers, the little hot glue gun printers. Mm -hmm. After that, you kind of get into the rapid prototyping um, market. That's like you you're printing like representations of what you're like to help you visualize what you want to build, right? So they're not like functional prototypes. Um, and then after that, you have functional prototypes. So those are like not strong enough to, to, you know, mass produce, but they'll like tell you something about your design or you can test it, right? Or they might be really expensive, but they'll work. And then kind of adjacent to that is fixtures and tooling. And so I think there's actually a lot of people using 3D printed fixtures um, in their machine processes. I'm do you have any example have you used that before like a 3d printed soft jaw uh i haven't used that yet but like i mean i'm thinking like in frame building too like uh burf who does btr fabrications he's made like a a stay tubing mitering fixture that has you know all the tube tube blocks and stuff are just plastic that he made on his prusa or something yeah yeah so i think that's a pretty big application for um bikes yeah so then you get after that kind of like prototyping area you start getting some production stuff and that's where i kind of put frame building in because you know you have to the, the stuff has to be high quality and it has to be strong right and so in that category there's low volume production and that's like less than a hundred things mm -hmm. even like on the order of 10 right so for example the benefit of 3d printing in this area is like our chainstay yoke 
we can just print one of them if we wanted to, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, and and there's some fixed costs associated with it, like heat treatment and um, shipping. That's why we print in bigger batches at once. But you know, you could get ten chainsaw yokes printed, right? And and that's it. That's all you need for one year, two years, five years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you were to like have to machine a chainsaw yoke. Yeah, I could tell you all you, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't have to get into the numbers, but how? What what kind of quantities do you feel like you have to be producing to break even from your tooling, your your research costs, your setup, your machine, everything? It's. I mean, that's a little bit hard to say because, like, for instance, like if you bought the machine just to do it, or if it was like a sideline on top of an already profitable business, and th- those sorts of questions. But yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't even have a number, but I think I probably sold. I don't know, like. 150 250 not a not a massive massive quantity of the steel ones in a little bit over a year maybe i don't know it not not a ton of them and they were a huge upfront challenge to get going because the those are the most complicated part that i've ever programmed just the machining is like a lot of like tricky stuff and then fixturing uh which you had mentioned earlier but like Fixturing the part is something that I don't struggle with that much generally because most of my parts are not terribly hard to fixture, but the operation to like the second half of holding that is very challenging. Like I had to get really crafty to, to, and I mean, there's like, (laughs) there's a feature on the part essentially that, that influences, you know, like the design was sort of influenced by like, how the hell am I going to hold it? And so you know, it'd be, and then people asked me, they're like, oh, that's great. It's for three quarter tubing. Can you make a seven eighths version? And I was <laughs> yeah. like, uh, I could do it a Get little, here. <laughs> I could do it a little bit faster the second time around, but like, it is no small job. And I, eventually I did when I released the titanium ones, those are available in seven eighths of an inch, but like it was, it took me, I had to build a whole new fixture and reprogram everything. It was a huge job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff blows my mind. Um, Cause I have no idea how to do that. But with 3d printing, like you, I'm not saying it's easy, but you don't have to think about those sorts of things. Yeah. And if you wanted like a three quarters or seven eighths or whatever chainstay plug, you can, you know, that's like comes for free. Yeah. Right. You can just upload another model and it more or less will work. Right. Um, yeah. And then after, after you get, I think past a quantity of 100, and you start getting to like high volume production, this is where like, I feel like 3D, so you're like maybe on the order of a thousand parts. This is where 3D printing can't really compete at the moment. And I don't think it ever will. Um, just because, and again, it depends on your part. Like it, it's always gonna be faster to start with a big chunk of material than to like build it up 60 microns at a time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so like, there are some applications where it is advantageous to print uh, to print parts in orders of or quantities over a thousand, but that's really limited at this moment. Um, and then after that is mass production, and I feel like in mass production, you're talking like millions of things. You're not going to be three D printing that. Like injection molding, casting mm-hmm. is definitely the way to go. Yeah. I don't know that much about, um, all of these industries because I do such small scale stuff, but like just the cycle time of things really starts to matter because you figure like, let's say you needed to make, 
you know, a hundred thousand of these things a month, but like each one of them takes actually a considerable amount of time. Well, then that just means that you need like a stupendous number of the machines and the, the floor space and the personnel and, you know, each machine only has a finite output per month. And it's like you see things that are actually really, really affordable things that are made in huge volume. Like I think of like, you know, wire forming and like sheet metal stamping machinery and stuff or or even injection molding like those machines, you know, they are noisy and they are fast. And there's just like a, a mountain of stuff that comes out of them every hour. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you could even say that about bikes made in Taiwan, too. Like I was doing a little bit of background research and I came across some catalogs of bike specific machinery. Like you could get a you could get a, a machine the size of like a house that just cleans your bike tubes. <laughs> like <laughs> like it's crazy they have a whole industry of these machines specifically designed for making bikes and that's how they can do it so efficiently, I feel. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, again, like then you're mass producing. It's like a whole different ball game. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny cleaning tubes, but like you, certain little steps that don't feel like they're that big of a problem when you start to actually do like, I don't know, some sort of time study or something, you realize like, wow, even these little details, like just cleaning tubes, it's like, well, it's not, it's not complicated to clean a tube, but like the question isn't how complicated it is. The question is like how much time is involved. And so like, yeah, like I've thought about that for my own process. I'm like, oh man, when I take a bar of aluminum and I chop it up on my auto saw, now it's got coolant and chips on it. It would be really nice if that was not on there anymore when I took it to the next step. But it's like, I'm not going to sit there and clean them manually. And I'm like in big enough industry that I'm sure there's like some sort of vendor that sells a machine that'll do that or whatever, there's some sort of solution. But you think about that in a factory, like that these little tiny details actually get attention and they, they have solutions. Yeah, and so my background's like in mechatronics and um, like software design, electronics, and I've actually thought about making a robotic tube cleaning machine because mm -hmm. again, like these are kind of the areas that I'm interested in, is solving these little pain points with technology. Uh, yeah, because sometimes like I'll meet with Nick and we'll talk about the the time cost of each step. And I'll try to find ways to optimize. And I was shocked to find how long it takes to, to clean tubes, especially titanium tubes, because you mm -hmm. have to really go at those. Um, and even just funny things, like small details, like some tubes come with more scaling than others. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, adds like five, 10 minutes of cleaning. And then it's like, is it worth it to get that tube versus the other tube? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead some tubes just come with like a really nice finish to them. Like I'm thinking like those Tongay tubes have like, yeah. they're just like really clean and shiny. I don't know. Like, I guess the inside also could be a consideration whether the inside is like polished to scale or not. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So get back to 3d printing. Yeah. Um, those are the kind of the different categories that I think about 3d printing and frame building definitely is in the low volume production. Mm -hmm. So less than a hundred. And that's why I think it's, it's a really good application for it. Um, yeah. And specifically, I think 3D printing is good at, uh, I, don't, I would say, four or five things. So one is thin, lightweight structures. Yep. And that's because if you think about why it has an advantage there is that if you were to do it traditionally, you're removing 90% of the material. Whereas when you're printing, you mm -hmm. can only print the 10% material that you need, right? So that and has the advantage. As compared to like machining too, it's really hard to machine thin stuff because like the cutting force of the repeated interrupted cut of the end mill or whatever, it creates chatter. And so like fighting that ends up being like the biggest challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of highlights the second 
um, thing that 3D printing is good at is impossible designs. Mm-hmm. So designs that you can't machine or even just, for example, like lattice structures. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can machine a lattice structure. You have to build that with 3D printing. Yeah. You can't even really injection mold that or like cast that either. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. These, how do you, I guess maybe a sand mold, but even then. How do you get yeah, the sand very, out? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then uh, I would say the other thing is low volume production. Like we talked about in the quantities less than a hundred. If you can get functional parts that are strong, I think that it's going to be better than uh, traditional traditional manufacturing. Just because, like, a, you know, like if I told you, hey, can you make me 10 of my own yoke design? You're going to be, no thanks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you would really need, like, to do 300 or 400 or 500 to make it worth your time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the other thing about 3D printing that's good is you get customization for free. So going back to the example of the yoke, to change the plug size, you have to have, in traditional manufacturing, you have to have a whole different fixture. Uh, The design is easy, right? You just change that in CAD, but then you have to change all the workflow. Maybe now you have to have a bigger bar stock than Mm -hmm. what you were using before. So all this little stuff adds up, whereas in 3D printing, the customization is free. I could change the diameter. I could change the chain line. I could change... Uh, the tubing or sorry, the tire clearance. And once you kind of have this architecture for a yoke that, you know, prints well, all the other designs that branch off of it come for free. Well, you're forgetting though, is when I changed the parameter from uh, one shoebox unit to two shoebox units, then it's no longer <laughs> viable. Yeah. Yeah. So small things for sure. <laughs> Anything bigger than that, just start with a big piece of material. Don't try to build it up by layer by layer. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's why, that's again, that's why if you look at the things that we print on our bikes, they're all very small, right? Yeah. Like they don't, not, we're not going to print a tube. Like we're not going to print head tubes. We don't print bottom brackets. It's just like, it's cheaper just to buy a bottom bracket and weld it to it, Yeah. right? Um, yeah, it saves a little time, but you know, we're, we're not trying to make super expensive luxury looking mountain bikes. We just want nice performing ones. The, um, I wanted to make a point for people who haven't considered this. It's just that, uh, the size of something 3d printed, there's a cubic relationship there because like, um, as something gets twice as big, it takes what, eight times as long to print. It takes eight times as much material. Am I doing the math right there? Because it's two times, two times two. Yeah. It's cubic. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's not always immediately apparent to people uh, until you realize. And then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, right? When you visualize something linearly, it's like it looks a certain size. But then your brain, it's really hard to wrap your head around like uh, quadratic relationships or cubic relationships. And so, yeah, it has a lot more area. And so, again, going back to the original, the first point, it only makes sense if it's a thin, lightweight structure. If mm-hmm. you're just printing bricks... Yep. Then just start with a brick. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, and I would say the last point where 3D printing is good at for frame building is it has a pretty low barrier to entry. If you learn CAD mm-hmm. and you spend a little bit of money and you do a little bit of research, you could print some parts and put it on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and like uh, some things like, eh, you know, dropouts, yokes, some of these like the structural engineering that goes into them, which I want to talk about some, like, how do you know what's strong enough and whatever that could be a little bit harder too for some people to suss out. Whereas like, let's say you're a builder 
once you get your welding or your brazing to a certain level of aptitude that you feel reasonably comfortable that you've like kind of hit the mark, then you just use, I mean, if you didn't know how to engineer a bike otherwise, then you would just use, you know, the sort of traditional tube sets that people use and you would have a reasonable degree of confidence that your bike wasn't going to fall apart. When it comes to like designing a whole, you know, structure all on its own, you need to have some sense of how to engineer things and, you know, the material properties. And so we should talk some about that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a counterpoint to all the things that it's good at, this is what it's going to suck at. Um, one thing that people like what you're saying is the strength and I think more importantly, the validation of the mechanical properties is definitely a question for 3d printed parts, not saying that things will just like disintegrate and fall apart on you. It's just, there's just so like, there's hundreds of years of experience with steel, right? They have, you know, they know the grain structure, they know the like heat treat cycles, they know the annealing, all those different properties. Whereas 3D printing is definitely the wild west. You're joining every little piece with a laser that's welded and it's just going to get a lot of stress, a lot of heat, and there's going to be imperfections. Um, so yeah, we could talk about mechanical properties yeah. and my thoughts on it and just testing and frame building in general. So I would love to have some sort of testing lab or equipment to really cycle tests and also just to kind of benchmark the stiffness parameters of a bike. It's on my list of things to do. It's just not my area of expertise. If somebody, if that is their area of expertise, then maybe we could talk about it on the forum that I may or may not decide to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would love to set up a lab like that to test, but without testing, right? Like I would say testing is all about money, like having the funding to do so because you can't test everything, right? And even if you create a test, that test could have blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. If you, there's plenty of things that like, will pass a fatigue cycle test, and then it breaks in the real world, mm -hmm. because you're only loading it to some guess that you had, you know, when you create the experiment, yeah. right? Um, and so for 3D printed stuff, the technology is just not, or not, at a point where I feel like you can really, oh, I should say there are companies that like aerospace companies, they have entire departments and like hundreds of engineers whose job it is to make sure that something doesn't break like a turbine blade. Right. And so like, yeah, they have the testing and they have the resources and they have the design capability. They also own the printers. So they have control over the entire process. Um, but if you don't, what I would say with it is that you do have kind of the base mechanical properties. Every printer, you can get the, um, what do you call it? Some documentation about the elongation, the stiffness, the strength of the part. And then from that, you could kind of use an educated guess on how much factor safety you need compared to the other parts on the bike to make it strong enough. And of course, if you don't have the money to test, then you just in a way you kind of overbuild it and to make sure that it'll be strong enough. Yep. And also one thing that I should say, and Nick always brings me back down to earth because I'm always living this like theoretical engineering world is that in the end, it's just a bike and bikes break, right? Like we haven't had a failure on our bikes, knock on wood. Um, but he reminds me that it's going to happen. Right. And like even a traditional manufactured bike, custom steel frame, they break all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Or I shouldn't say they break all the time, but they will break if you're riding it. Yeah. And so one thing that we, we purposely don't do is we don't do any parts that are cantilevered. 
And so parts that if they break, you will just be face on the ground, right? Like mm -hmm. all the parts that we have, they're supported by multiple tubes. And so if one joint fails or partially fails, the bike is not going to just disintegrate underneath you. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, if I know some people are printing stems and they might have the testing and charge the price that of the stem to be able to have confidence that it won't fail. But uh, for us, that's not really our target. It's not to make stuff that already exists. It's just to make stuff or sorry, just to improve. We use 3D printing to make stuff cheaper and better and faster. That's our main motivation. The, um, I, yeah. And I think that, I think that's a good point to make is that, you know, yeah, to, to take seriously the risks and whatever, but also in general for people who are interested in frame building is to realize that there are some parts of the bike that you maybe need to be very, very careful when you build them. And there are other parts that uh, even if it failed, it probably wouldn't hurt you. It'd just be like, ah, oh, rats, it broke. So it for instance, yeah, that, or, you know, <laughs> you might not even mind. You say, oh, I guess I'm going to have to build another one of these too bad. Yeah. You know, like I love making stuff, but yeah, like forks, oh man, like you gotta be careful with forks and uh, you know, like uh, there's all sorts of things, but you imagine some of these, like a, like what if it, what if you did over dimple your chain stay and it cracked? Like that's a problem if it's your customer's bike and now you have like a problem on your hands. But like, I, I don't know, it's, it's a little harder for me to imagine that many situations where like a chain stay cracking is going to get somebody hurt. Like it could, but like, it seems a lot, certainly less likely than like other, you know, like a stem failing or a fork failing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also why Nick has insurance for this too, just yeah. because, you know, um, I, I would also say with these parts, like if you think about why a bike breaks in these areas that I'm trying to replace, it's typically a weld, right? It's like the heat affected zone or some defect uh, like in the mitering or in the parts that are being joined. And what the 3D printed parts that I designed do well is that all the surfaces are, one, the walls are much thicker on the parts that are being welded. So like the joint to the BB is much thicker than just a tube would be. Mm -hmm. But two, everything is, every surface meets with the face perpendicular. So what it means is that like, let's say, uh, you, you know how the, if you look at the picture of the chainstay yoke, it kind of flares at, right before it reaches the bottom bracket, it flares out to be perpendicular to the bottom bracket. And so that's so you don't, it's easier to weld and it's like, uh, when you weld it, it doesn't distort as much. And it's just a much more comfortable, smooth weld. And so there's a higher chance that Nick won't make a mistake or put too much heat or whatever into these joints. Um, so that I would say is like an advantage for 3D printing is that you can design it such a way, like take, for example, really good example, the flat mount bosses, right? Mm -hmm. Without a part, you're hogging out so much material and you're putting so much heat into that area yeah. that even if the 3D printed part is weaker, it still doesn't have so much room for error when making it, right? Mm -hmm. Or welding it. Um, yeah. yeah, so I would say about the strength too, like they do have the, the diagrams, or sorry, not the diagrams, the, there will be documentation that you can get on the mechanical properties of your printed part. But the thing about 3D printing is it's so dependent on the print itself. So. For example, you have to imagine that this thing's being built up layer by layer. And so if you're if you have like a really fat chunk 
like a really fat wall that suddenly transitions to a really thin wall in your print, what's going to happen is that as it's printing, that fat piece is going to be super hot and it's going to be warped or expanded or just be really stressed out. And then when you print that really thin layer on top, it gets, uh, you know, the thin layer feels the stress of the part below and you won't get as you'll get maybe some uh, internal stresses or it might not even form as well because the part warps or maybe the whole part becomes warped. And so you really have to design these parts to be like to print it in mind, like with the printer in mind, you have to visualize kind of the heat flowing and the part being built up as it's printing. Hmm. And so that's one of the keys to getting a strong part is just a very solid, simple design. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cool to hear your, your thinking about the way that the, the shape of the part can conform to, you know, it's, it's intended purpose, but also, uh, it can, <laughs> the, the part can meet the other tubes, you know, like at 90 degrees, like you're saying. And, uh, the, I mean, I do a lot of that, even my yoke that I machine, I just try to make it interface well with the way that people actually, you know, what, how the process goes, you know, so they don't have to weld it together. So they don't have to first miter it. But like when you think, um, and I had discussed this a little bit with Ed Mason last week is that like, if you just take a part and you say, well, okay, so this was designed to be machined and like, should we print it instead? Probably not. But yeah, like, maybe you could not. think, maybe you can think a little bit more, you know, open-minded about like, well, how could I redesign it and take advantage of the new, the new opportunities that that would present to then do it even differently or better. And, you know, that's, especially when you start to really get, like you were saying, you came from designing parts for plastic 3D printing. And so like that can be an asset sometimes to like be able to think that way. Yeah, the same problems in the plastic 3D printing process, like heat buildup, warpage, transitions between the walls, they all apply to uh, metal printed parts as well. That's what I was saying earlier. If you can do, like if you're pretty comfortable with the hobby FDM printers, then I think you're ready to take on some metal parts. Yeah, I, there's one one more thing I want to say that what sucks about 3D printing is the accuracy of the part. Mm -hmm. And so if you there's some designs that are just much harder to take on than others. So for example, when you print a part, it's going to have different accuracy in one dimension versus the other. So typically you can only get accuracy in one. You can't get both, right? So if you think about a dropout, a dropout has the faces that you want to meet up, which are important, like the the seat stay plug, the chain stay plug. But then perpendicular to that is the dropout face. And so that's really difficult to print if because it's going to want to warp. And it's also transitioning from thin tubes to a thick, chunky dropout. And so you have to be really careful when designing that part. Mm -hmm. And it also requires an internal lattice structure, or doesn't require, but it really would benefit from an internal lattice structure to help it stop warping during printing mm -hmm. um, yeah and so that's the thing about these printed parts is that if you try to bite off more than you can chew to start off with like a dropout then you what well i mean in the end like nick says it's just a bike so you could probably get it to work which is fine but uh yeah you might have to end up post machining or it won't come out right if you mm -hmm. just just rely on the accuracy of the part too much like all the parts that we get back are warped some to some degree, right? Like the way that the yoke is printed, the legs flare out a tiny bit because as it's finishing the final pass, there's a lot more heat 
on the outsides of the yoke than the inside. So it wants to bow inwards. Mm -hmm. But you just have to account for these and expect it. Mm -hmm. Like if you want accuracy, you need a CNC machine it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so like those little uh, uh, internal cable routing entry exit points that you do, like that's a little potato chip. It's like very simple, uh, relatively simple to design. It's uh, relatively cheap because it's a small amount of material. And there's not necessarily that much of an engineering consequence, you know, or, or like <laughs> not, yeah. not much. Yeah. Practical consequence for like your bike's this, not going to crack in half. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, maybe if you really roast the joint as you're brazing it in or something, but that'd be a brazing issue. So, um, yeah, I mean, you're really, uh, some, some things are easier than others. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good transition to kind of how to get started in 3d printing. Yeah. So I think it first starts with CAD. You have to be, you have to know CAD. Um, and I would recommend downloading Fusion 360. It's free. And even though it's an engineering tool, you don't have to be an engineer or fabricator or manufacturer to learn how to use it. It's like, if you're good at visualizing 3D objects, then you can learn CAD. I feel like a lot of people are very intimidated by it. Yeah, I'm actually, I feel like my visual spatial, like it's hard for me to see things in my head. And so, and I never really learned how to draw that well, like sketching with pencil or something. And so CAD has become, which is not necessarily appropriate, but like CAD has become a really valuable tool for me to to get the thoughts out of my head and then kind of interrogate them and say like, is this actually going to work? And, you know, being able, like I need to really develop my skill for drawing because like just being able to do a quick sketch on paper would save me a lot of time and be a good way to root things out. But um, I found learning CAD to be kind of hard. Like it was, it was just enough of a learning curve hump that like I struggled to get into it for a long time and I barely got anywhere. And then I took a class it was like a computer lab class for two days with eight students and the, you know, there's a projector and the guy, this is like 2018, the guy was like showing us how to use, you know, just 2D sketches and then do some 3D stuff and fusion. And it clicked like, you know, like an hour or so. And I was like, okay, I kind of get it. And it just happened really quickly, but I, I did struggle with that. And I'm sure other people do too. Sometimes. Do you remember when you were first learning CAD, how that went for you? Uh, I don't even remember actually. <laughs> or I think you had mentioned that you taught that too though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually all throughout grad school I actually taught um CAD like as a so grad SolidWorks. Yeah, as a something? grad student and even for one quarter as a professor, which is kind of funny because I was like, Am I allowed to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, I taught a lot of CAD. We taught um Inventor okay. and SolidWorks. And I don't know why the engineering department taught both probably to mess with students. But uh, yeah, I mean, once you learn one, you learn them all though. Um, yeah, so I've actually taught a lot of CAD and I know the pain points with, that people have. It's, I, and then maybe this, since you learned it recently, this is probably like uh, relatable, but the biggest frustration I see is that some student is trying to like make a sketch or do something, but they're in the wrong menu. Like they're in the feature menu and then they're trying to draw a sketch, but they're like clicking everywhere, but they oh, don't know funny. how to exit out of that menu. That's, I don't know why it's so hard. <laughs> like, or sorry, I know why it's so hard. I don't know why they don't make it clear. But, yeah, that's uh, funny. I remember with Fusion, I struggled with the difference between a body and a component. I was like really trying to make sure that I did things, which is funny because like it is important to get that distinction, but it's not the first thing you need to understand. And so, um, 
but it was just some of that stuff where I was like, I just don't really understand how to go about it. And then pretty quickly I realized, I was like, wait a minute, like most of what you do, especially when you're making things to be machined, it's like you just do a two-dimensional sketch of like lines and arcs, circles and rectangles, that sort of thing. And then you extrude that shape into three dimensions and then rinse and repeat. You just keep adding and subtracting features by making a sketch and then pushing and pulling it. Like that's most of it. Like there's all sorts of other little tricks, but like that's 80% of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for 3d printing workflow, you do a lot of like center lines and, uh, center lines and cross sections and you use the sweep and loft tool a lot. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's how I get those fancy shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, I do really want to learn surface modeling, though. That's yeah. something that, because I come from engineering background, and I I don't know anything about surface modeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's more from like industrial design background, and I exactly. don't even know what tools they use or how they even do it. It kind of blows my mind. I know. Um, so that's on my list of things to learn. I've seen some YouTube videos where people make more sculptural looking stuff. Like somebody did like a, you know, just like a little water bottle, like a Contigo thing or something you'd carry with you, like a reusable water bottle. And they, they modeled it all up in, you know, 15 minutes or something. And I was like, wow, this is so different than the way that my, like, it's funny too. Cause you think about some of these, you know, creative software, it's more of like, like in fusion, you would like fully dimension everything. You would make sure yeah. that your 2d sketch was all black. Like all the lines were black and locked down. They had a dimension or they were coincident or whatever. But like a lot of people, they just draw stuff and they just, they never, you know, it's just based on the way it looks, which is crazy. And I think that's maybe more often how the modeling stuff works too. I don't know. Yeah. I, I definitely want to learn how to combine both. So that's on yeah. my list of things. Well, and with um, three, 3d printing too, you know, like you don't need to worry about fixturing or whether or not it's machinable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I would say the other, the other tip I would give uh, to getting started is you have to understand the limitations of the printer. I think the mistake that everyone does is the the like, oh, I can just print anything, but I feel like you should start simple, and like kind of print things and then kind of close the loop, check it out, see how it works, and yeah. understand the limitation of your design and your printing process. Now, what would you recommend for people who are trying to figure that out? Just like get some sort of 3D CAD software, maybe Fusion, get yourself a plastics 3D printer and just start like make something, test it, make something, test it, and then send send something to metal when you feel like you're starting to figure it out. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I think if it's frame building specific. Okay, so a little rewind back to that comment. Um I think one of the things about metal 3D printing is that it's fast, but it's also not fast at the same time. So yeah. the turnaround time is roughly, I would say three to four weeks. But the problem is like, if you print something, you just, let's say you spend a month designing something, right? And then you print it and then you get it back and then it maybe takes like a couple week or two to, to figure it out. And then you find out that, you know, there was a mistake in the design or something. Then you have to print it again. That's so that's like from start of the design to getting the next revision is like two or three months. That's and so brutal. that's why it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a give and take. Yeah. I don't know. That's pretty tough. That's where I'm hoping like if there is an online forum to discuss that people can learn from other people's mistakes and kind of be onboarded much faster. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I would say things that you could do. Uh, so one, I would say start small, like ports, brazons. And even chainstay yolks, I think, are pretty easy to print. 
and you can kind of phase that into your process. You don't have to go like I see a lot of people, they'll go full bore and like print the whole suite of parts at once, which is fine if you know what you're doing. And like there's a lot of people with skills to do that, but it's kind of an unattainable goal if you're starting. And I think if you just start small and print a couple port like ports, brazons here and there, then it'll be good. Um, and I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I do print for people. Um, like if you just want to try it out or you're trying to learn because we, you know, you'll kind of save on shipping and heat treating cost, but I don't want to, yeah, don't want to open up that can of worms, um, too mm -hmm. much, but that's one way you could just ask people for help, um, to print it. I would say the other thing that I've learned through making mistakes over and over and over is to print labels on your parts. That's something that I would do. Uh, I have a whole bucket of mystery parts that I got back in a month and I was like, wait a minute, how was I supposed to use this part? What is this design? Like, what's the, what's the, uh, the what's the drawing that this part is for? That's um, funny. Yeah. Like putting a serial number on it. So it's identifiable. Yeah. Serial or version number, because that's the cool thing about 3d printing. You can iterate super fast, but then also if you don't have the proper documentation, you can, uh, mm -hmm. lose your shit. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, that's a really good point. Yeah, and then I would also say that uh, this is something that I force myself to do and it's helped a lot is even though it's a 3D printed part, I still make a 2D drawing before I print it. And that's for two reasons. One is to catch a mistake. Um, for example, I was helping somebody with a flat mount dropout and flat mount dropout design. And then I found out by dimensioning it that they had designed it to the quick release flat mount standard which shouldn't even exist to begin wow. with. Um, but the, you know, there was some confusion involved, but it's only when you like, when you have a part in CAD, it always looks perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but so you, if you dimension it afterwards, you can use it to catch those mistakes. And I would also say the other reason to do that is when the parts come a month later, you're going to have no idea what you did or why you did it. Right. And so if you have a 2d drawing, it's really useful. Yeah. So I would say don't uh don't skip out on that. Um, and then I think the biggest thing is to start simple and design simple and keep things simple. I think there's like this uh, excitement with 3D printing that you can print anything and you can, but it's not necessarily a good design for 3D printing. Um, yet, like if you look at the design of my parts, everything is just a smooth sweep. And in the end, I do think it looks good when things are simple. When you start adding all these crazy stuff onto it, you know, it just looks like you are really excited about 3D printing. But, you know, aesthetics is, is subjective. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it would be cool. I'm sure some people come at it from a little bit more of an industrial design background. I can imagine, you know, getting sculptural with it, even keeping it simple. But just like, I don't know, some people are real artists with that sort of stuff. I would like to yeah. develop that skill maybe, but... Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so for things not to do, so with great power comes great responsibility, um, uh, said by uncle Ben from Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. And I see this mistake a lot. I think it's like, it, you should try, you should avoid printing things for the sake of printing. Um, for example, like printing a, uh, a cable guide onto a yoke 
I've tried that several times, tried, I mean, I've designed it several times. And I think people's default reaction or default design to do that is they'll design a cable guide like they normally do and just attach it to the part. Mm-hmm. But you have to imagine that that part that the cable guide that you put on it has a sudden wall thickness change from the thin yoke into a chunky uh, chunky cable guide. And that will cause a stress concentration and also just the heat and it leads to more heat buildup and warpage during printing. Um, I'm not saying that that design can't work. It's just like, I think it's better to start with something simple and then build to that rather than just start off the bat trying to print everything you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also would say like simpler is better. So, you know, I would try not to print things that like just for the sake of printing, like a bottom bracket with threads. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is just my advice to beginners. Like if you want to go for it, go ahead. But it's CNC is always better for that kind of stuff. Like if you print something, it's never really going to be round. Yeah. Um, you think about a bottom bracket is like the perfect case for a CNC lathe because the tube is already, you know, nearly the proportions and a CNC lathe can be automated pretty easily, even like an old one or a simple one. Uh, you're looking for like a precision fit with the threads. That's something that a machine can do really well, like a CNC, but not 3D printing. And, you know, it's just like it checks a lot of boxes. So, um, you know, if you're going to have like a big joint with that, like a, a big bottom bracket cluster that serves as a chainstay yoke. And it also allows you to square cut the down tube and the seat tube, which saves mitering steps. And it maybe it moves the welding distortion and the welding heat away from the bottom bracket threads. If you achieve a whole bunch of those things at once, that's another thing to consider. Although I would imagine that get to be pretty, pretty expensive piece by the time you had it that big. Yeah, for sure. And like, I know a lot of people are doing that, like they're printing whole lug sets, and I think that's great, but they're also charging like whatever, eight, 10K for a frame. Um, And so I think if you're started, don't get intimidated by that. Just like start small, build up, do small things, and trial and error a little bit, like cheap trial and error. Um, Yeah, I have a funny story about printing. So I I taught this class, or I was the grad, or the TA for this class called MA3 for like, six or seven years. It's an introduction to design class for freshmen. And so we teach them CAD and also they build a robot. And when I came on, the only tool that they had to build the robot was a laser cutter. So they would cut acrylic plates and then like use aluminum brackets to screw together, to screw together this robot. And so I brought 3D printing into the class for the first time. And we bought like three 3D printers. And at the time, they were pretty expensive. They were like MakerBot printers. And I was like so excited that finally, you know, students were able to print things. And then I was really disappointed because the what they were printing were just flat plates because the laser cutter was uh, like the laser cutter was always in use. And so instead of waiting for the laser cutter, they would just mm-hmm. try to print out these flat plates on the printer and they, the, the plates end up taking like four hours long because there's so much surface area on oh them. Oh my God. And I had to like, I remember I had to go to class one day and be like, guys, you're not allowed to print plates anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you print the plates, we'll cancel it. <laughs> That's funny. So but, yeah, you have to kind of reframe the way you think about things. Yeah. Like if, if you know, a BB shell that already exists, just buy it. Right. Yeah. Um, or, or like the BB shell is lacking 
So I'm going to make something that actually is new and different, you know, it solves a problem. But I, the first thing that I ever sent to print on my 3d printer was this assembly tray that I built just to help me get a, a tube bender that I make, you know, built more efficiently and whatever. But you know, how did I sketch it? Well, first I drew a rectangle that was about the size of my print bed. Then I extruded that up like 16 millimeters or something. <laughs> and then I started to yeah. subtract little cavities out of it. And it's like, yeah. well, that's really thinking like a machinist because I started with a big rectangle block and then I only machined into it the features that I needed. Maybe what I could have done instead was to maybe draw like a rectangle instead of extruding it 16 millimeters thick, I could have done it, you know, three millimeters thick or just enough. And then I could have extruded up other features to hold the parts so that the the total mass of plastic instead of being whatever cubic volume it was like you know 20 percent of that or something but it just yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I would say though for that case like if you have your own 3d printer and it's one of those fdm printers just send it like oh send yeah. it overnight and come back and call it a day like for sure that, but I, that's but why I, I love those printers they're just so cheap and fast for those even if you want a brick you could print a brick yeah um, you can for sure i do think though like one of the things i really appreciated as as someone who designs stuff it challenged me to think very differently about parts and that was a good challenge for me or like another thing is on my cnc lathe uh the spindle bore is inch and five eighths and so you have bars that are smaller in that smaller than that diameter and you want to support them through the spindle bore. And so one of the things, one of the coolest things I ever designed for the 3d printer was these, these, uh, these sleeves that you slide in they are about 10 inches long. So the outside of them fits inside the spindle bore and the inside is just big enough. Plus a little bit of wiggle room for the bar. So like, let's say you had a three eighths inch bar of stainless steel, you were going to turn on the lathe and it's like a, it's a, the inside of the tube is like three feet long anyway. But like you can, uh, I do these like scroll shape things with a tube down the length of them. And it's just a really cool product because like, or a really cool piece that I designed because it has a little bit of like <laughs> sort of like a spring to it because of the scroll shape. It's not yeah. that much total material. It supports it. Well, it's just like, it checks a lot of boxes. Like I think that's a good part for 3d printing. Whereas like, you know, some of the first parts that I would have thought of, they'd just be, just like as if you were starting with a chunk of billet and you were removing the least amount of material necessary. Yeah, definitely. Like what you described exactly that case is like that 3D printed part is it's like you had it, you designed it in mind and it was probably the cheapest to print it that way. And it was quick and you got it done and it worked great. I love finding those kind of solutions. Yeah. And that thing was something that would have been impossible to machine. So like, you know, again, it was like, Oh, cool. Like that's a, it's a cool, cool solution there. Yeah. Yeah. I have uh, just two more traps to avoid. Yes. Um, so one is avoid, and this goes back to the first trap, which is making things too complicated. It's to avoid support material. And so even though you can print things supported, it's kind of, it's kind of a bad design if you have to use support material, meaning that it has some sort of overhang or some orientation that isn't well suited for 3D printing. I almost see support material as like a crutch for a design that wasn't really well made for the printing process. Mm -hmm. Like obviously everything is printed with supports when you do it in metal, but if you can visualize it to be printed without supports, then it's a pretty good design, I would say. So try to use, try to avoid support material as much as possible. 
mm-hmm. yeah and you know it doesn't it doesn't you don't have to do it but for every 3d printed part there's someone has who has to go manually cut off all the support material and then grind it down with a dremel so it's it's just a little bit more efficient if you don't design things that rely on support material I want to make a point about that too. You mentioned that, and I think that's a really, you know, you can imagine 3D printing is just like, yep, I just, any shape that I want, as long as it fits in that shoe box, we just hit print and then poof, it comes out. But like, that's not really the case. And uh, yeah, a lot of this stuff, it does need support material that, uh, you know, like you need a, I mean, I think some people actually use like a EDM to cut that off, but a lot of people would use like a, a bandsaw or I don't know how different shops do it or process that sort of thing. What do you know about that? Yeah, they have to, from what I understand, they have to use wire EDM to cut it off the build plate. So they have these, like, I, I don't know if they're sacrificial build plates. I don't think they are. Um, but yeah, the part is basically welded onto that build plate and then you have to cut that off and then you have to cut off all your low supports on your part and then you have to grind it down. Um, and so going back to even plastic 3d part printed parts, you have to manually clean all of the resin off. Sorry, I should say resin printed parts. Um, you have to go and manually clean off all the resin. It takes several, um, cycles of, uh, IPA bath and then air drying and then cleaning again. It's actually a very messy labor intensive process. So going back to why 3d printing is never really gonna, or shouldn't say never. Why I don't think 3D printing will take over CNC or traditional manufacturing is just at the moment, there's actually a lot of labor involved in making a part. So the cost is always going to be high. There's no way to get it. Like there's no way to get those supports off the material supports off the part without someone going in and manually doing it. Yeah. I should also say that it also adds to the cost when you have support material, because you have to pay for that support material being printed. Yeah. Um, but that that's a good segue to my last point, which I find is like the biggest mistake that people or the most worrying mistake that people make is that they make design decisions based on the cost of the material. And so you could get into this kind of this uh, obsession of making mm. your part lighter because <laughs> you charge by the gram. Yeah. Right. But then the thing is, like, you shouldn't make your part lighter you should make your part strong enough for your application and then it costs what it costs yep right (laughs) like um so i think that's that's one thing that when people are are saying about like the cost of 3d printing i'm like no please don't do that just make your parts good and just pay the cost like (laughs) yeah well and also even you can think of that cost in terms of dollars some people you know they think like that in terms of the bike maybe they're not concerned about dollars but they're like oh i want to make it so light sometimes frame builders are tempted to use like the lightest weight tube set they can get just because like wouldn't it wouldn't it be like satisfying to pick the bike up with your pinky finger you know your your 12 pound road bike or something and yeah. i think that that can be dangerous too you know it's like you should like uh, as well specifically to this like if you're a frame builder i would say before you venture into that super duper lightweight stuff you need to really feel confident that you understand how to build these kinds of bikes how to design them and how to you know uh join the tubes and all that stuff because like that that thin stuff is just it's 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 wild stuff and uh it behaves differently especially like the heat treated steel i know like it doesn't have the same exact properties like you know like your reynolds 531 it's like a really forgiving material 
and then you look yeah. at like the air hardening heat treated stuff it's like that that stuff actually kind of crumples and snaps when it gets past a certain point and it's it, it's just not the same thing anymore so yeah what i think is really cool about frame building coming from a more like engineering technical background is that the frame builders have a lot of really good insight into the mechanical properties of these tubes or based on personal experience or based on like learning from other people and it's it would be really cool to actually test these because um, there's like a lot of questions right like you know even with these three printed parts the question is always like is it going to break right and the thing is like yeah it won't break on my frame hasn't broken yet maybe will but you won't really know unless you can really subject to testing like a life cycle test or a fatigue test um and same with all the tube selection and you know people like and you know like and then bike's a bike and as long as it doesn't break i think it's super fun to ride but people will obsess over different tube diameters or ride quality and it would be cool to actually test that just so there's like a benchmark for people to be able to know how much the down tube diameter will affect the stiffness of the frame or blah 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 yeah so i've done a little bit of that with fea modeling mm -hmm. but you know that's just fea right like it it's kind of guides your decisions but it's not a very accurate model so let's just let's just spitball some ideas here let's say that you built a machine to test the ultimate strength of the frame you know at what point does it break so like let's say you were a competent frame builder and first you built like you know your traditional tube to tube welded uh bike frame that you know is sort of a baseline representation of how strong bikes are and you know it's it's kind of like a known quantity or something and maybe you built a machine that had maybe it had like a motor and a flywheel and uh i don't know uh, it had like an oscillation mov movement maybe like you had fixed the uh you had like a dummy axle or something attached to the rear dropouts you're just testing the frame in isolation and then you have you have something that is like a proxy for a fork you know it's like a long rod that goes through the head tube and the bottom of that is is oscillating forward and backward or something like it's extending and contracting the frame uh does that make sense that'd be yeah. like one sort of sort of torture test that you could put and you could change the travel of that oscillation whether it was like a short distance or a long distance that it was flexing you could change the rpm and you could uh and then you could just run it till it failed and see what happened is that one thing that you're kind of interested in or like what what kinds of tests or what kinds of machinery or like what do you what would you be interested yeah. in yeah so they already have those those like bike testing labs mm -hmm. but i think they're more they're more focused on passing uh i forget it's either iso or etro standards and so that's like if you want to get your bike certified and i've had it it's about like i think a thousand six hundred dollars to get a frame tested but I kind of, I poked more because I want, like, I don't really care about passing those standards. Well, okay, granted, let me just say, I care about the bikes being strong enough and safe for sure, right? Mm -hmm. But like testing standards are just something that's given by some government body who decided that we should test this, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily applicable to like ride quality or to um, ride feel, right? Like for example, and like, again, this is like a, some Something that a question that I would love to answer is that every single bike size has to pass the same testing, right? Yeah. And so, like, does that mean that the small bikes to pass the testing are way overbuilt? Yeah. I don't really like intuitively, I think that's the case, but I don't really know, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so that's something that, you know, like I'm not going to submit five different frame sizes to this testing lab to be tested for 1,600 each and for them just to give me a report at the end. Like I want to know more details yeah. of, you know, so like, the cycles, stress it more, stress it less. So like measured deflection, you think? Like like having yeah. like uh, travel range indicators and then saying like, okay, so this is a five kilogram load. You know, like we've supported the frame by the head tube and the dummy axle. We, we uh, applied a five kilogram lateral load at the bottom bracket and it measures a deflection of, you know, two millimeters or something. Like, is that getting in yeah. the direction of what you're thinking? Yeah, definitely. So on the, like, I think the easiest level, which you don't really need a full lab to do, you just need fixtures, is to test essentially the frame stiffness. I know there's like that famous German magazine, I think something tour magazine that they had their own test lab and they'll like get a road bike frame in and test the stiffness and all that kind of stuff. German things, you know? Um, but yeah, it, like what I'm really curious is about the bottom bracket stiffness and especially uh, mountain bikes, the torsional stiffness of the head tube. I think mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why steel bikes ride well as mountain bikes is that they're kind of, noodly um and they like can kind of snake their way through rocks and stuff and you get more traction because your frame is flexing and keep the wheels on the ground um oh add that to the list of <laughs> things yeah frame the compliance contentious yes. topics yeah yeah people are probably just raging at the keyboards like getting ready to, mm -hmm. to fire off about frame compliance warm up your um, keyboards ladies and gentlemen <laughs> yeah and to answer the question to the the trolls out there I don't know. That's why I want to test it. Yeah, you know what I mean, exactly. <laughs> um, like everything flexes. If you push on anything, it flexes, mm -hmm. right? Send it's it into Yang Labs, and we'll give you a write up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. So, like the basic, uh, like stiffness testing, and just how that translates to ride quality, and also different size riders. And then, for specifically like three D printed parts, I don't think you want to test the whole frame over and over and over. I would love to just like put in a chainsaw yoke and just keep like fatigue testing it to death. Like the, if you think about the way bike frames fail, it's either user error where it like encounters a tree, like what Nick does, mm -hmm. or, you know, you drive it into your garage, right? Mm -hmm. um, or it's a fatigue failure from welding, right? Typically it's not like a tube doesn't really shear in half, right? Mm -hmm. And so, it would be interesting to test the fatigue life of these 3D printed parts in a bicycle specific application. I've I've like tried to find some research topics on fatigue and 3D printed stuff, but there's just not that much out there that I could find. Maybe someone knows. Um, it's also, it just hasn't been around enough to be tested that long, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but again, to caveat all these conversation, like even traditional methods, things break in fatigue. And so I just want to know the limits of what these printed parts can be pushed to. And so then you could have conversations about bringing the wall thickness down or optimizing the strength. Yeah. Without actual testing, you're kind of just flying blind. So, okay. Uh, in general, let's say, let's say you 3D printed a top tube from end to end, if, if that was somehow possible. Uh, how, and, and it was the same in all proportions and materials as the top you, you would otherwise use. How much thicker would you do the walls of that tube? Is just like a rough sort of, or would you do it thicker at all in order to compensate for the fact that the material is not like, uh, 
you know, like a homogenous, well, it is homogenous. I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good question. Like if you look at, if you look at the mechanical properties that they give you of these 3D printed titanium things, they're roughly the same order of magnitude of strength as the bulk material. But the thing is, when you're printing it, it's not like, I think there's a misconception that these parts are hollow or they're porous. They're not porous. They're not like any less dense. I think they're what Silka had told me. They're like 98 or 99 point something percent dense. Right. But the way that the, the little powder packs together as you print it, you're almost always going to get small, I wouldn't call them defects, but just not like, you know, a perfectly uniform homogenous piece of material. And so in the case of the tube, I, that's a really good question. I don't know. I think like if you just printed it, it would have the same stiffness properties and it would have the same strength, but it might just have a defect that just causes it to fail in the middle. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So you, like I think you'd be printing like a 0.7 millimeter wall thickness, which I think is close to what I feel like the limitations of those printers are. Um, again, that's based on my knowledge. I don't, if I owned a printer, I would be able to tell you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, need, but that's, these are the kind of questions that I feel like are really interesting. We need to crowdfund you a, a 3d printer and a testing lab so that frame building can be better. Yeah. There's, there's a, <laughs> there's not enough money in frame building to buy a 3D printer. <laughs> but you know, if you made, I, I don't know that this is really possible. If you had like a Patreon and you had a YouTube channel or something and like people could subscribe and like learn with you. And if it was already a thing, I feel like people would jump on board, but I feel like it would probably be a hard sell to get people to like, you know, yeah. Commit to it ahead of time. But yeah. I mean, even the question of like, let's say we cast a titanium tube. Like I, I was looking, um, at some Taiwan suppliers and they actually cast like titanium dropouts and head tubes and they have these really cool shapes. And I, I just have no idea how titanium cast titanium even works or how strong it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, it would be interesting even just to cast the top tube and like, how, how would that handle? Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I mean, these are just the small topics that it's just like a niche area of frame building that I'm interested in. Uh, and like, I think to really push the state of the art, you would need to have some, like answer these questions. You know, you don't have to know the stiffness of every frame, but if you had kind of a database yeah. and some benchmarks, you could know, you know, if, if this is the stiffness target that I'm aiming for and based on this rider weight, like what, what, uh, combination of tubes and budding profiles would get me that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, dang, uh, I feel like the time slot is is done and I got to get moving to the next thing, but I'm enjoying the conversation and I appreciate that you came on the show and you shared so much of your knowledge about all of these things with everybody. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for being on the show and uh, we'll talk some more. And for people out there, if you want that frame forum to exist, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta let Daniel know and then you gotta show up and actually be a part of it. Yeah, when and, it comes and to post, post all of the hot topics and just <laughs> go at it, get it out of your system. And like, yeah, I, I would love to see it to be like truly lively, but also like, yeah, more, uh, a greater sense of decorum than you sometimes see, which I know is possible because there are some discussion places that are just great communities. 
And I think yeah, that yeah, it, maybe maybe we have a podcast in the future talking about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so everybody out there, you want it to happen. We need this resource <laughs> in the community. Be be the change, right? But anyway, thanks yeah. for being on the show. And um, yeah, thanks for being on the show. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye.